the uh, Hofner bass is back with you uh, on this yeah. tour. I'd like to know what attracted you to that instrument, first of all, and second of all, is that the original? This is one of the originals. I had a couple, uh, and there was one stolen. Um, but this, this one here, it's got the actual, you can see a little bit of plastic up at the top of it on the side. That's the actual gig list from Candlestick Park, I think. So it's kind of, it's just a little piece of paper. It starts off rock and roll music, babies in black, I feel fine. And, uh, and finishes with yesterday spelt wrong. But, um, so yeah, what originally attracted me to that bass was being left-handed. I would always play other basses. And because of the cutaway and because of the arrangement of all the pickups and all the knobs, I always looked stupid. And anyone could go, duh, you see, can't play it. It looked like Because I had to turn it upside down and restring it. And the good thing about this was uh, it looked kind of symmetrical. You know, the violin shape, so it's symmetrical. So even if you turn it upside down, it doesn't look that mad. And plus, I didn't have a lot of money. I was working in Hamburg, and it cost about 30 quid, 30 pounds. I'd hate to tell you what it costs now. <laughs> Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, hello. Hey! Everybody out there, welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing. Remember, this is widescreen podcasting and the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wells. Thank you all so much, everyone, for listening to the show. Hope you're all well, safe and sound. We're going to keep things brief here today, folks. As you may have guessed, me and my good friend of the show, Dylan Seavey, will be picking up where we left off with disc two of the 1990 Tripping the Live Fantastic album, a.k.a the album that chronicles the 1989-1990 Paul McCartney World Tour. So yeah, pretty self-explanatory. You should have listened to part one, really. After the housekeeping and a little bit of homework about another release called Tripping the Live Fantastic Highlights, me and Dylan will carry on with our song by song. Though, whenever I have a guest on, we do normally end up having a bit of chit-chat at the start. So to balance out the length between parts one and two, after we finish the album proper, we're going to give our thoughts on some of the bonus deleted cold cut tracks that were featured on the tour. Again, like the last episode, this was recorded months ago. So in terms of anachronisms for this episode, um, the only one that really springs to mind is the fact that I do make a rather tasteless joke about Jerry and the Pacemakers in retrospect, because why wouldn't I go back and put my foot in my mouth and embarrass myself in that way? But, of course, in all seriousness, rest in peace, Jerry Marsden. Why couldn't I have made a Phil Spector joke instead? Anyway, keeping it nice and breezy, like I say, I had a lot of fun editing this one, and I hope you have half as much fun listening to it. So, without any further ado, let's crack on with the... Housekeeping! So, what do we have in terms of news today? Well, first and foremost, my episode with the Blotto Beatles podcast has finally been released. Episode 16, My Time, My Dear, with Sam Wiles, is the episode you will be looking for. It is an absolutely fantastic episode. I had so much fun listening to it. I, you know, laughing out loud at my own jokes, as I want to do, of course. But yeah, we had a three-hour conversation, and they managed somehow to cut out all the fluff, all of my bullshit, and distill it into 
an immensely entertaining package. I'm sure many of you will have listened to it anyway because you are all immensely loyal, as I know. But if you haven't, please check out the Blotto Beatles on whatever podcasting platform you are on. They are pretty much everywhere. And go check them out on Twitter as well, at Blotto Beatles. And as always, drop me an email. Let me know your thoughts. You know, how well did I do? Anyway, in terms of the current Macca album, I did hear from our good friend Ken Michaels over at the Things We Said Today podcast that McCartney 3 has now officially dropped out of the UK Top 100 albums chart entirely. It's not there. It's gone. It's over. In the States, Taylor Swift's Evermore has only dropped down to the number two spot in the US Billboard Top 200, whereas McCartney 3 trails behind, at the time of recording, at the number 200 spot, literally the very last spot all the way at the bottom. Below the following albums. Queen's Greatest Hits, both Beatles 1 and Abbey Road, Thriller by Michael Jackson, Nirvana's Nevermind, The Eagles Hotel California, and once again, Rumours by Fleetwood Mac. To get in contact with the show, please email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Let me know your Paul McCartney stories, your thoughts on McCartney 3, and any Paul McCartney parenting stories you may have. I know the majority of you listening out there have grey hairs, so come on, quit holding out on me. I know some of you out there must have some sort of McCartney-based tale for me. Also, I know a lot of you out there were apple scruffs as well. If any of you, like my good friend of the show, Andy, hung around outside Apple or MPL and have little anecdotes for me, maybe you broke into some shows as well, please let me know at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. No emails to read out today, folks. You've been spared. Follow us on our... For more regular updates and for a more personal, intimate connection, join our Twitter page at McCartneyPod. Check out our sister blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com for all sorts of bonus Paul or nothing content. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by typing in Paul or nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. If you want to help out the show right away in a form that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you are using. If you're on YouTube, maybe even give us a little thumbs up. If you can write a nice little comment, hey, that's even better. And if you want to help out the show directly, if you want to help keep the lights running, or maybe as a sign of appreciation because you've just been really enjoying the show, then please consider joining our Patreon family. Patreon, as I'm sure you know, is a way that you can support independent content creators such as myself and basically allow the show to expand and help keep the lights running. So if you appreciate the show, if you appreciate all the hours I put into it, hey, please consider chucking a couple of dollars at my face down the internet a month. And if you do, you will be able to join our wonderful Patreon family, including Teresa Breda, Stephanie Millen, Louis DiLonardo, Stuart Cook, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia P, Robert Carabelli, Warren Butson, Matt Phillips, and Tony Vosal. Thank you all for everyone who listens to the show. And now that we've gotten all of the admin out of the way, it is time for us to talk about... Tripping the Life Fantastic Highlights. So yeah, just before me and Dylan continue our unfair assessment of an album that was released before we were even born, and, you know, we continue ripping on songs that you just had to be there to appreciate, I thought it would be fun and relevant to bring up the side album release called Tripping the Live Fantastic Highlights. This was a redacted, reduced, abridged version of the triple disc or double CD spectacular. And it's a perfect example of how important physical media and the world of record sales still was 
at this particular time in McCartney's career. Oddly enough, there is no precise information online as to the specific release date, the actual day this album came out. So if you do know, please drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. But the reason I'm so interested in that specific date is to find out how soon after the release of the two CD triple disc vinyl version came out. You know, was it planned all along or was this cobbled together to help increase sales? Increase sales, you say, Sam? I hear some of you say. Didn't Tripping the Live Fantastic surely get to number one the world over? Well, no, not really. Uh, Number 26 in America, number 17 in the UK, number eight in Spain, and it did get to number one in Italy. This is no good though, this is no bueno. And to make things worse, Tripping the Live Fantastic was a behemoth lavish triple disc set that would have cost an arm and a leg to produce. And if they didn't make their money back, it would be a noticeably annoying loss when compared to such a lucrative and successful world tour. Clearly, the original Tripping the Live Fantastic triple disc vinyl spectacular, that was also done in a two disc CD set, was designed to emulate the splendor, length and grandeur of the highly successful Wings Over America album released in 76. So why didn't Tripping the Live Fantastic get to number one? Well, the answer is increasingly complicated actually, because Firstly, Wings Over America had a load of hype around it. It was the culmination of a world tour that was delayed. It was the first time that Paul had played in the States since the 60s. And despite some big tunes debuting on the 89-90 world tour, Wings Over America was the first time any Beatles songs were performed at all. It also had a live hit single in the form of Maybe I'm Amazed to back it up. That went to the number 10 spot in America. It was one of the top 100 singles of the year. And... Since Paul got more radio play back then, it would only have helped push the album further. Which then leads me on to the harsher truths of the matter. Paul was just more popular, relevant, and crucially received actual radio airplay during the Wings era. Heck, even into the early 80s. He was not getting that in 89 and 90. And don't forget, folks, Wings Over America only went to number one in America. And the... American-centric, America-centralised focus of the album certainly helped its sales in the old British colonies. You know, did American Sniper, American Hustle, American Gangster or The American deserve to be the box office smashes that they were? Maybe not. But they all did, because they have the word America in the title. And American exceptionalism is a thing. However, the fact that I'm here today talking about a truncated version of Tripping the Live Fantastic indicates that the people at Capital and MPL thought the main reason that people weren't buying this album was purely because of the cost and the size. The triple vinyl slash double CD format was simply too expensive for anyone other than the diehards to bother buying. And you want those dirty casuals. They're the ones that make up 60% of sales a lot of the time, you know? And that is who exactly Paul and his new manager, Richard Ogden, were aiming at. And so, a newer, shorter, sleeker, cheaper version of the album was made at some undetermined point. Email again. But yeah, it was put onto shelves with the following track listings. The CD version is Got To Get You Into My Life, Birthday, We Got Married, Long and Winding Road, Sgt. Peppers, Can't Buy Me Love, All My Trials, Things We Said Today, Eleanor Rigby, My Brave Face, Back in USSR, I saw her standing there, 
coming up, Let It Be, Hey Jude, Get Back, and then the closing medley. The vinyl version of Highlights on side one opens with Birthday, Long and Winding Road, Sergeant Peppers, Can't Buy Me Love, All My Trials, and then ends on Eleanor Rigby. Then side two opens with the only song from the album they were plugging with that tour, My Brave Face, followed by I Saw Her Standing There, Coming Up, the only other solo McCartney track on the album, Hey Jude, Let It Be, and Get Back. Now, my gosh, there is so much material that has been cut there. Like, is it really worth it, you know? If you like Paul McCartney that much, wouldn't you just wait and save up and get the proper version? I mean, the only reason I can see why someone would buy this over the other one, or in addition to the, the main version of the album, is the addition of the unique track, All My Trials, which was one of the songs that they'd practiced during the Russian album, slash Snother, slash Chobber. And I'm sure some people out there will agree with Ogden and McCartney's decision to release this shorter, sleeker album, but it's not experience, is it? It's just highlights. You know, you don't get the wonderful rock and roll colours that really bring everything to life. You know, you don't have the opening track, you don't have all the silly little uh, gags and skits and stuff. That's what makes Tripping the Life Fantastic what it is, for better or worse. I mean, this reminds me of that awful highlights album for Jeff Wayne's The War of the Worlds. Like, it's so tepid and limp-wristed and lame duck. There's no soul to it. And I know I'm one of these people that's really interested in the single-disc White album, but come on, you couldn't release a one-disc set called Wings Over America Highlights. It would just be awful, wouldn't it? Though that does sound like a good blog post, actually. Note to self. Anyway, whilst I'd like to say that this gamble paid off and went straight to number one, this ain't a Hollywood movie, folks. Tripping the Life Fantastic Highlights did not chart at all here in the UK and only reached number 141 on the US Billboard Top 200. However, there is a bittersweet silver lining here as despite never being a smash hit, it did go on to be a sustained seller and after a long, slow and steady build-up, it eventually went platinum. Now, being a fan of McCartney 3, I am no stranger to the concept of buying an album again just for one extra song. But again, there is no reason for me to get this outside of my acquisition of all my trials. But unfortunately, that is too tempting and I am going to scour eBay forevermore until I find me a nice, cheap, unbid version of uh, Driven the Life Fantastic Highlights. Can't wait for that to come through the post. But anyway, enough of my unfounded, unresearched bias opinions. Let's read the only review of this album from the ever-reliable RateYourMusic.com user Yeah Blues, who I think we've mentioned on the show before, actually, writes, Better than the proper 2CD slash 3LP release, or for that matter, the CD version of Highlights, which featured six more songs. This abridged version features mostly Beatles cuts and, thankfully, only one track from Flowers in the Dirt. Interestingly, this vinyl version, released through Columbia House, features All My Trials, which is not available on any other version of Tripping the Life Fantastic. It's better than expected, though it has too much pathos. And there we are, folks. That was just a little bit of homework, a little bit of a bit of bonus content before we get into the conversation. I also wanted to touch on Tripping the Life Fantastic highlights because me and Dylan do mention it towards the end of this episode. 
Speaking of which, let's cut right to the live feed right now. One, two, three, go me. Hello everyone and welcome to the live feed. You should really know by now who I'm joined with today, uh, but just in case you are a sicko who listens to part two of a podcast oh. without listening to part one, I am joined today by an incredibly astute musician, communicator of musical ideas, Beatle fan, and my dear friend, Dylan CV. You may remember him from our Let It Be film reviews, and here we are today to carry on our look at Tripping the Live Fantastic, disc two. Welcome back to the show, man. How's it been in the interim? Uh, since the last time we talked last week, a lot has changed. My hair is maybe a half centimeter longer. Oof. We had a very successful trip to the veterinarian for the two cats. They are looking great. Blood work is fantastic. Um, <laughs> it's somehow 10 degrees warmer here in Nashville. It's 64 degrees which I think for you is, I don't know, like 20 degrees Celsius. I don't really know how that works, but it's I, I, nice I and warm here. I don't work either. Don't worry about it. Some edge of your seat podcasting here, folks. No, <laughs> I'm glad everyone's tuned back in. Now, you're a man who can actually play instruments without being horrendously <laughs> embarrassed. Have you, have, have you been taking part at all in the 12 days of Paul? Well, I would first like to say that I'm actually very capable of embarrassing myself while playing an instrument, <laughs> and I have done so many a time. Um, but I have yet to take part in the 12 Days of Paul. I did learn the riff to Long-Tailed Winter Bird after listening to the YouTube trailer many a time. Oh, okay, that's cool. But I... I can read music, but generally it means that I need to sit down and look at each individual note for about five minutes before figuring out exactly how it all goes. So it would just be a process for me that I don't really feel like taking part in. But once the record is out and I can spend some more time listening and learning by ear, then perhaps I'll I'll have a good cover that I can uh, provide as the new theme song to your show. Oh, long-tailed winter bird, you know. I th- I thought the first time I heard it, because, spoiler alert, folks, we would have heard the album by the time this goes out, but long-tailed winter bird, the moment I heard it, I was like, oh, yes, a new McCartney instrumental that's really good. I might steal it for my new theme, you know. <laughs> I've got a new thumbnail now where McCartney's actually spelt correctly for a change. I was going to congratulate you on that. I saw that the <laughs> other day. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> I was I, seeing how long you'd ride that out. I've I, I, no, no, but when uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I've, I've forgotten your name, pal. But I, I, I had a guy who emailed in, and he pointed it out, and you know he won the booby prize. Well done to him. And I asked my friend Danny, who designed the thumbnail, if he could send it me over. He went, yeah, sure. And that was about two months ago. Just yep. n- <laughs> nothing happened. And then he just sends it me out of the blue, just like completely, like without without prompting. And then that means, you know, you have to spend an entire day going through all 100 plus of your episodes on Hmm. Podbean to make sure the correct image is on all of them. You know, you you can't trust the algorithm to do it for you. It's funny you should mention Longtail Winterbird, though, purely just uh, just because on my last episode, my McCartney 3 update, the third one, I was I was going through the 12 days of most of the uh, covers are of Long-Tailed Winterbird, mostly because that was the first one released, of course. Yeah. But also, I said, all guitarists are going to want to learn this who are McCartney fans. And I was like, you've just proved that perfectly for me. So, 
it's 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 a fun re- i mean who knows maybe i'll maybe i'll get a full a full band cover of sliding down by the next time we talk to but I, I unfortunately don't have a really good recording setup at my house i'm mostly relying on iphone demos at the moment which are fine and dandy but you know if, if i'm gonna do something i'm proud of i'm i'm gonna go somewhere to do it and I just don't have those capabilities, Sam, because I am poor, and uh, (laughs) maybe one day I won't be. You are talking to a guy who had a film degree and then turned to podcasting, you know? I I know exactly what you mean. Uh, We gotta do what we gotta do for the hustle. Things are really looking up for us. Oh, 100%. But we're not here to dawdle. We've got extra songs to talk about at the end of this conversation, so... We're just going to dive right into it. This is disc two of Tripping the Live Fantastic Paul's live album to uh, the chronicle of his 1989-1990 world tour. Uh, That didn't quite cover the whole world, but starting things off, (laughs) our first song today, Dylan, is the Beatles classic as far as I'm concerned. It's not a single, but it it, 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 it is everyone's, you know, kind of top 10 deep cut. It was recorded on the, the 2nd of November 1989 and took place at the Palacio de Sportes in Madrid, Spain. This is, it's a good name for a Beatles podcast as well. This is The Things We Said Today. Folks, if you listen to our part one, and if you haven't, I'm not sure what the fuck you're doing here, but yeah, go back and check out that episode, and you will recall, originally me and Dylan envisaged this review as a single, concise episode, maybe like two hours in length, something like that. We all know how well that went, but the best part is that I now know what Dylan's favourite bits and pet peeves are going into (laughs) a lot of these songs, and... I'm just going to say, dude, with this first song, I'm going to guess that you absolutely cannot stand the guitar tone in this song. Take it away. Oh, it's terrible. It's so bad. And and let me say, uh, yeah, this is potentially sneakily a top 25 Beatles song for me. Absolutely adore this song. And at the beginning of the song, of, of, of this particular version of it, I can stomach the guitar because i'm really just happy he brought this out because you know like we talked about in part one this is the first time that he was going full beetle for a whole tour and you know he has the full complement of his beatles compositions to bring out and i don't think a lot of people probably saw him 
trotting this song out. I think it's really cool that he thought highly enough of it to bring... I mean, the fact that he played this song before he played, you know, Penny Lane, Here, There, and Everywhere. I mean, you know, s- some of these classics that everyone knows, he didn't bring those out to later tours. You know, Penny Lane, Here, There, and Everywhere. I mean, you know, s- s- some of these classics that everyone knows, he didn't bring those out to later tours. But by the time it reaches the end of the song, the e- the epic solo... Oh, it's it's just it's too much. It, it it's it's really bad. And and you also know how I feel for the most part about Hamish Stewart's vocals and his non-blend with Paul McCartney. And it also that irks me with with the tags at the end and the call and response. Um, it, you know, it starts off so promising, and then by the end of the song, I'm so so glad it's over because it is one of my favorite Beatles songs and to me this is not the way to do it same as you I love the fact that he chose this song but the arrangement is just all wrong isn't it <laughs> like of course it's going to be translated somewhat into the big stadium style but all of the charm that made the original as attractive as it was is just totally lost And I completely agree you know what it reminds me of? Do you remember when Paul played I've Just Seen a Face during Wings Over America? A, you know, mm-hmm. Another complete, total flop of an interpretation. <laughs> also acoustic as well. Like it, it makes me wonder, like, are some Beatle acoustic tunes, because they are so well produced by George Martin, if it's not something where the audience will shut up, like Yesterday or Blackbird, are they unsuitable for this format? Um, it depends on the arrangement, and I feel like he, you know, did his best to combat that here by turning it into a bigger, more arena-friendly sound. Because generally, I mean, nowadays when he does songs like I've Just Seen a Face here, there, and everywhere, he's augmenting them, whether it's with accordion or, you know, drum parts or guitar parts that aren't on the original recording that are really nice. And, and we're, we're going to talk about that with another song coming up, a song that he augments with some extra parts that really work for it. But I just don't think, like you said, that this suits the song. I don't think it suits uh, the, the general vibe uh, of the song. And, you know, it, it's difficult to, you don't always want to be comparing these to the original you know, be, because you can't there's help a, it though, can you? you, you it's really, really difficult not to. And just because something is different doesn't necessarily mean it's it's better or worse. But in this particular instance, knowing what the original sound like does to me make this so much worse. And for what it's worth, I think the wings over America. I've just seen a face. While not my favorite, is ten times better than this because at least it's over quickly. This goes on far too long, <laughs> you know. So that's yeah. that's where I'm at with this one. And it doesn't go into a really good Denny Lane version of Richard Corey either. <laughs> yeah, they was... couldn't have brought out like the only living boy in New York after this, or, <laughs> or some um... other some other good Simon and Garfunkel Baby Driver. You know what, Simon and Garfunkel song I'd love to hear Paul do. Uh, keep the customer satisfied. That'd be a good one. Mm, mm, or maybe even a uh, so long Frank Lloyd Wright. There, there. You could pull off a lot of them. 
So long, flag, Lord, right do. Yeah, you know. Be very I, I, I'm with uh, I'm with Ken Michaels on this one. I, I have always wanted the two Pauls to do something together. Funnily enough, the original format of the show was just in case somehow I did you know an album of Pauls a week and I just got it done really quickly. The idea was going to be that I did then do Paul Simon's back catalogue. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, and then I do Paul Weller, uh, and then and I, you got Paul Westerberg. Um, yes, uh, there's there's, there's got to be another one. I don't know, Paula Abdul, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you could do uh, you could do three or four shows just based off that one music video. I could do like maybe like Pauline Kale and just go into like film criticism from like the seventies. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Also, Dylan, I know that you didn't like the extended jam at the end of Sergeant Pepper on the part one. I'm going to guess you uh, feel the same way about the jam at the end of this one as well. Oh, well, yeah. Maybe if the guitar tone wasn't complete garbage, I wouldn't hate it. And look, like I said, I love a good jam. You know, if, if I'm remembering correctly, when I saw him in 09, they did a little bit of a jam on paperback writer. That was fantastic. Mm. Uh, I, I'm still a sucker. I know it's overplayed and expected at this point, but I'm a sucker for the Foxy lady jam at the end of Lenny <laughs> Rollin. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't mind at all extensions jams. Like I think it's great. You know, I grew up listening to the Almond brothers and Europe 72 by the dead. And, you know, I, I, I love that stuff, but when it just doesn't, sound good <laughs> then i'm not that interested and it's just unfortunate because you know things we said today is yeah. a brief beautiful song that doesn't really need a guitar solo and it especially mm. doesn't need a guitar solo where the guitar tone is terrible the worst bit though for you is that this guitar tone is throughout the whole song it's not like just for that solo because uh, all these yeah. like fills littered all over the place there's no escape for you at all no, and like I said, I can stomach it at the beginning of it. Because at, at this point, again, I'm just happy that he's trotting this song out. And then by the end, yeah, it's uh, it's unbearable. It, it, between that and then the things we say today. Like, uh, yeah, I've, I have a tough time oh. with, with Hamish sounding like Rick Astley doing the background vocals. <laughs> Next up, in second place, we have another Beatles classic. And one that Paul already remade a few years prior on Give My Regards to Broad Street. Though, sadly, we're not going to have Eleanor's Dream tacked on to, to the end of this one. This was recorded on the 8th of February 1990 and was taken from a gig at the Centrum in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Eleanor Rigby. Where do they 
again, folks, I know my foe this time around, uh, you know, in terms of my guests' opinions. And again, with this second song, I'm going to guess, Dylan, that you really wish Paul had used a live orchestra and that Wixie's orchestrations just didn't quite cut the mustard. Please respond. Firstly, if you're going to make fun of Boston when you're talking to a kid who's from New England, you got to get the <laughs> accent right, kid. Uh, so work on that. Um, yeah, you're not a fucking I, cop. <laughs> there you go. That's better. <laughs> when, when in doubt, just quote The Departed. Um, yeah, I... Um, I'm not going to quote so, Jack, uh, Jack Nicholson's opening mon- monologue, though. <laughs> not yet. That's uh, that, That'll be for the end of the show. <laughs> Yeah, I, I certainly would have loved to have heard uh, a live orchestra here. I'm going to be honest and say um, that regardless of when it's from, this song has never really worked for me that much in a live setting. I mean, I, mm. I love the song. I think it's certainly one of Paul's greatest compositions. It's probably in my top 50 Beatles songs. Love, love everything about it. But I don't hate it. I don't even dislike it. I just can't ever imagine going out of my way to listen to a live version of this. If it comes on, it's completely fine. I certainly think it's an instance where I never really love it being based around the acoustic guitar as much as it is. Yes. Um, yes. And also, I feel like... Again, you know, it's such a slippery slope, and I'm sure that some people listening to this will object to me or us consistently comparing them to the originals because to some degree you can't rely on that. But when you know what it sounds like when John Lennon and George Harrison are singing the background vocals on this, and and again, for as, for as much as I've talked down Hamish, you know, he sings some really good background vocals across this record, across Paula's Live, across studio records. The the new guys in the band, Brian and Rusty and Abe, they, they're great singers. They're all excellent. I don't need them to sound like John Lennon and George Harrison. This is just one song in particular where the background vocals are so prominent mm. and they just never sound the way I really want them to. So this is not a low light for me, even, even with the keyboards and even then keyboard strings don't always bother me. This is just a song in particular that I just don't ever think has worked as well as I want it to in a live setting. I feel like Ken Michaels, when he's about to respond to something I've said, uh, well, you know what, Sam, uh, I just totally disagree with you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's okay. Yeah. Which is okay. Like, and he will say that bit as well. But yeah, for me, I, I'm completely on the opposite end of the spectrum here. I thought Paul pulled this one off with an unexpected grace and sure-footedness. Like, okay. for a song that is iconic as this, again, people haven't heard this one live before. And with the limitations he has, with that caveat, I think it's really quite effective and sufficiently emotive. Wixie, specifically, I kind of prefer that tinny midi keyboard sound because that acoustic composition will become even more prominent across the years 
uh, as we mm-hmm. get more more and more modern. He rarely ever seems to bring on a full orchestra for this. I'd love just to see Paul at like the proms or something with like you know <laughs> or with with the London Philharmonic doing this. Was this version as dramatic as it could have been? No, but I, I liked the shift to the to the, to the vocals. Uh, I thought the non-Beatles were able to create quite unique yet faithful harmonies. I thought Linda adding something to the Eleanor Rigby harmony actually added something. Yeah, of course. I really thought that it it had a certain certain charm to it. I think this track in particular, it hints at a nice little portal to where Paul isn't trying to constantly sound like the original record. And mm-hmm. other tracks on this album, he does that, and it doesn't work at all. Uh, but here, I think it does, and I, I actually quite, I actually quite like this version of Eleanor Rigby. But you are right. Going back to what I said earlier in the in part one, there are certain songs whereby once they've performed it on the album once, technically they've never played it correctly since. And <laughs> this is, you know, this is one of them. You know. Is yeah. it going to make you feel the same emotion you felt during the opening of Yellow Submarine? Of course not. No, but but I actually won't even. Um, it's funny because we 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 disagree on some things, but I I think he does sing this particularly well, and I I think it was a great idea for him to bring this song out from that perspective of you know Paul McCartney really being a Beatle live for the first time. I mean. I mean, there aren't too many songs that are a lot better than Eleanor Rigby. I, I, I think it's a great idea. I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, I wasn't happy when I saw him play this. I'm not saying he should never play this again. It's just a song for me that generally when I hear it live, and, and there's another song that I feel this way coming up in the set, every time I hear it, I'm like, well, that was nice. Uh, but it's just never, <laughs> it, it, it's not the same way, like, you know, th- there are times where, again, as played out as it, uh, played out as it is, there are certain live versions of "Hey Jude" where I'm like, "Wow!" Like that really packs a similar, yeah. if not the same, punch as the original. I've never heard or seen a live version of Eleanor Rigby where I felt that way. But the song itself is so strong, and I actually, I I think that. Every live version he's ever done, he does do it a justice by not trying to overdo it, by not trying to add drums to it, by not trying to, you know, make it sound like a big arena rock song. Like, you know, I I think he he does it the right way. It will just never for me be what I seek out. So I reckon for the next song, I'm pretty much going to have the same opinion as you. We're just going to swap it over. This next one, of course you're going to guess the very same kind of things that I staged a lot in part one. It's a Flowers in the Dirt song. I'm going to love it. Hmm. This was recorded on the 1st of February 1990 and was held at the Palace of Auburn Hills in Detroit, Michigan. This is This One. Did I ever take you in my arms take you in the eye tell you that I do Did I ever Then ever could be 
Dylan, don't get me wrong, any Flowers in the Dirt song, especially at this point in my podcasting career, is really going to rub me the right way. It started <laughs> off very strongly with those quite interesting uh, sitar sounds. Paul's vocal carries us strongly through the first verse, but as soon as we hit that chorus, it just runs out of steam with a real disappointing fizzle. <laughs> like, everything sounds right-ish. There's no polish, there's no sheen. It almost feels unrehearsed. Like the vocals in particular are not up to par at all. And considering this is arguably one of the greatest songs he's written since the breakup of the Beatles, utter disappointment. This is the rise of Skywalker of this album. (laughs) First of all, excellent reference. Uh, Secondly, what I think it is, because I, I completely agree with you. This is one of my favorite Paul McCartney songs. Beatles solo, Wings, yeah, yeah, anything, yeah, you know. Yeah. Perfect song, perfect melody. What I think it is, genuinely, is that it's too fast. They're, they're rushing okay. the tempo, and he sounds like he's rushing to get all those words out. This is a very wordy song. There, there's not a lot of breaths being taken here. And yeah. I feel like that does an injustice to the lyrics, which I think are really nice, and to the melody, which is fucking flawless. So, and I think that that leads it to kind of that unrehearsed quality that you're talking about. I, I agree. It is a disappointment. Um, you know, it, it's not terrible, but, you know, if, if we can be fair... Um, you know, talking about, oh, well, this doesn't sound as good as, as the Beatles. Like, well, this doesn't even sound as good as what he did the year before <laughs> with with the same band. You know, we, we can if we're going to compare it to the Beatles, we should compare the solo stuff, too. And I mean, and look, if you and I were at this concert and saw this exact same we'd performance, be mental. We'd, 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 we'd be, be falling it. over our st- I mean, un- unbelievable. We'd be so happy. He's playing um, this one, <laughs> but but from a pure listening standpoint, there's no reason to ever listen to this. Why why would you listen to this when you could <laughs> seriously? Why would you listen to this when you could listen to the same song performed so much better on the album that came out the year before? Just put that on the poster. Why would you ever? <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Yeah, um, <laughs> the thing that came to my mind with this was like, you know, when like people say like, "Ah, oh, the Beatles in nineteen sixty six, they they couldn't reproduce the stuff they were now writing on stage." I kind of feel like, you know, in the way that an arms race works, you know, better body armor's created, so then there's better armor piercing bullets. I feel like Paul is now making music that's probably even more difficult to make than it ever was before and now the new modern tech is struggling to keep up or mm. and this is something we're going to address at the very end of this episode whether Paul has just hamstrung 
this entire tour by basically putting about 50% of all the work on Wixie. <laughs> and just not allowing, like, you know, why not have Ravi Shankar's daughter here if you're going to have sitar? Why not just let Wixie just play keyboards rather than having to be the conductor, the arranger, you know, everything as well. Well, I do, I do definitely, I do definitely think that a large portion of the mindset going into this tour was to have everything sound and appear very polished. And what was considered polished at this point in the eighties and nineties was this very, very slick sort of feel and that's what you're getting yeah Yeah, and that's what you're getting with a lot of these guitar tones a lot of these keyboard tones you know even in the way that they're they're singing some of it you know that's where again some of my issue comes in not to beat a dead horse here where some of my issues come in with hamish's singing it's very polished it's very round it's very slick and that's sort of everything that paul was going for across the board here and sometimes it really works, and sometimes it really doesn't. And um, in a song like this, in a song like this one, <laughs> when you combine it with just the fact that they're not paying attention to what I think is the most crucial part of the song, which is this song needs to be performed at a very particular tempo in order to get across what makes it great. And what makes this song great is the melody. The melody is a direct result of how he's delivering it. And he's not able to deliver it with the same sort of energy or gusto because he's rushing to get all the words out. He's, they're focusing too much on the things that they don't need to be focusing on. I wonder how much of that was intentional or how much of that is just, or how much of that is just being out there live on the stage and just getting a bit excited, you know, and just playing mm-hmm. it a bit, a bit too fast or... Maybe Chris Witten's done too many lines off his Tom Toms, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it, it's definitely allegedly, folks. That's a joke, lawyers. That's that's. I'm not. No, no. Stand well, there goes no. your Chris Witten interview. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's one. Of, I mean, look, I can tell you not only as a musician but as a drummer. I mean, I, I'm guilty. I've watched live videos of myself where I thought, "Oh my god, I'm playing this at 200 beats per minute." I remember one time, probably about 10 years ago, I was uh, filling in for a cover gig and uh, the singer called out American Girl by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And, you know, I came in with da 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 and they had to turn around and tell me to slow it down because, yeah, you get excited. Yeah. So, you know, it very and again, in the moment, it's probably not something that the audience is thinking about. It's probably not even something that the band is thinking about too much, but it's very apparent listening back to it. And and I, I forget who made joke that, you know, live albums are always just, you know, greatest hits, but faster. I, <laughs> it's, someone may, that actually might be a Tom Petty joke, but, you know, that's kind of what this is. This is the album version of this song faster and it's one of a few songs that literally cannot afford that because it affects the performance and the greatness of the song again it's still a great song and there are so many worse performances across this record but i think it's particularly disappointing because this is such a strong song 
from a record that, you know, we're very excited about and, and so much of the other material from this record sounds really strong on this record. And you just want this particular song to shine as much as it deserves to. And it doesn't. Fortunately, our next flowers in the dirt track is a little truer to form. This was recorded on the 19th of January, 1990, and is the first of our three trips back to good old, merry old London in Wembley Stadium. This is My Brave Face. For me, dude, fortunately, this is where I'm allowed to fall back on familiar stereotypes. It's solo Paul, it's Flowers in the Dirt, he hasn't played it since, and it is nailed with an effortlessness genuinely only seen in some of the classic Beatles numbers in this gig for me. The only thing that's missing is the fact that Paul doesn't go, ladies and gentlemen, Elvis Costello, you know, and then he comes out, and, and, and then he comes out and they, and they sing it together. Elvis, I'm really sorry I don't credit you on the album fucking whatsoever, but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you can sing this song in Rio with me. But, yeah. Oh, man. I've always loved My Brave Face. I remember thinking this sounds Beatlesque and then reading about it in every single book ever and thinking, oh, I don't have any unique opinions at all. <laughs> but yeah, this is just a classic solo Paul song done really well for me. It's not the most complicated, but, you know, these guys have played this song with Elvis, they've played it without Elvis, they've played it live, promoting it. They know this track inside and out, a lot more so than some of the other Flowers in the Dirt stuff here. And this is a refreshing kind of mouthwash after the last Flowers in the Dirt attempt. What do you think? <laughs> uh, it definitely is better. I do think it's a little toothless, though. I don't think it has uh, the energy of the recording, which is interesting given that you'd expect it to have more energy in a live setting. Like, I feel like... Okay. Like, I... I I feel like we can call this what it is. It's a pop rock song. There's nothing wrong with that. And I feel like the album version is maybe 65% pop, 35% rock. Whereas this is more like 90-10. And I think I want it to rock <laughs> a little more. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's good. It, it's it's certainly better than, than this one. It, a great song. And again... And you could say this for almost every song on this collection. If we were there and we were watching this, I mean, I would be so elated to hear this. I mean, the vo vocals all sound pretty damn good. 
no, nothing nothing here sounds bad. I, I just want there to be a no. little more life, I think, in it. Don't have too much more to add this, so we'll press right on. And we have a song that is a welcome addition to any of Paul's live sets. This was recorded on the 5th of March 1990 and was recorded at Tokyo Dome in Japan, the same location as one of our very first gig reviews, all of you long-time listeners. We haven't done a gig review, actually, in a long while. We really should. Maybe we'll do one with <laughs> Dylan. Who knows? <gasps> I'd love that. Yeah, I guess this kind of counts as a gig review, but it's it's on an official album, so it doesn't quite count. But yeah, this starts with the sound of an aeroplane. It can only be back in the Chobber SSR. <laughs> I'm concerned this is one of those songs that Paul is simply incapable of fucking up same goes for the rest of the band I can't find any fault in the particular performances here all over it's played perfectly the faux Beach Boy style backing vocals were great Paul utilises his current annoying 90s growl to its best uh, utilisation here particularly like with the love he's like yes and stuff like that <laughs> It's back in that, the that USSR. That sounded more like Egypt Station, Paul screaming, yes. Yeah. <gasps> Wanna get deep down? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah! Like, those yeahs always make, make me think of Jet more than anything, though. Yeah. Um, overall, though, Dylan, this is back in the USSR, but it's done in the 90s. I'm not <laughs> sure what much more I, I could say than that. And I, I'm not sure what much more you can want, really. Yeah, well, it, it's funny that you said everything you just said because the first thing that I wrote down in my notes was note perfect, literally down to the airplane sound effect. <laughs> it's about the same as every live version he's ever played of this song, except for the live version at the Amoeba gig, which is the best live version of it. Because this is another one where, like you said, it's note perfect. It's great when you see it happen. It's awesome. You love it. It's never going to be as good as the original because the way he sings it on the original recording is the best way. But the Amoeba gig is the only time I've ever heard a live version of the song where I was like, oh, wow. He like actually put you know a little something extra into this. Uh, he doesn't put anything extra into this, but it's completely fine. Yeah, it's. It's back in the USSR in the 90s, and for what that is, it's completely fine. I'm just picturing, like, you know, huge flares and weird, like, Saved by the Bell animation <laughs> and, and Clinton playing, playing a saxophone solo in the middle. 
Although it is funny that he would play a song called Back in the USSR on a world tour that doesn't include Russia. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, that's an oversight, isn't it? He plays enough of the Russian album, for fuck's sake. I, Perhaps I, he was, you know, fearing, you know, being being shot with a radioactive poison or something. You know? <laughs> I gotta say, I, I find it really interesting that he zeroes in on this song as much as he does. This song has been in just about every set list of his since the 89 world tour. I don't remember if he did it during the, the new world tour in 93, but definitely every live set since the millennium, this one has been in there and it's a, it's a good song, but I, I, I don't really understand why, like I understand why he still plays Let It Be and Hey Jude and Band on the Run at every show. This is one that I kind of don't understand. This seems like one he could and maybe should swap out with, you know, insert other Beatles rocker here. Helter Skelter. Cause Helter Skelter, Paperback well. Writer, Day Tripper. Uh, I mean, there's there's so many. Um, but is, yeah, this is, is fine. Is this just him representing the White Album and him being like, look... Everyone remembers the first song. Let's just do that because I can't do Oblady mm. Oblada because I already did Queenie Eye three songs ago or something like that. You know, I think he has been doing both of those songs in the same set for a little while now, but I could be wrong. Yeah, it, it could back be to the, back by luck, probably. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it could be the White Album thing, but even then, like, I mean, he's got at least one other rocker from that album. Oh, he's got two other rockers. Well, and he already did birthday during this set. And we saw how well that went. So. No, please don't play this song anymore. Oh, please don't play this song. Yeah. Oh gosh. Let's press on to another Beatles classic. And we're going to see this Dylan. It's going to start ramping up in terms of Paul, just putting his dick on the table and just going, look, I can just deliver songs of such magnitude that no other artist can can deliver and I'm, I'm just gonna i'm just gonna stack them like james bond with chips in a poker game just this huge <laughs> pile of utter classics uh this was recorded on the 9th of december 1989 and was taken from a show at the forum though not in la the forum in montreal canada you know what i mean this is i saw her standing there This song always does indeed follow on from back in the USSR. And again, 
this is a double hitter of songs that Paul cannot perform badly. And the amount of immaculately done hits from this point onwards is going to be a lot more consistent than on disc one, definitely for me. I really enjoyed this one. And being a guy that always touts, I, I love the latter half of the Beatles, I like the psychedelic drug stuff, dude. Whenever Paul puts on one of these old, early, black and white classic Beatles songs on live, I'm just spellbound instantly and the old nostalgia gland in my brain starts to flare up. <laughs> and he's like a kid in a candy store at this point when he's crafting these set lists. Like, he's he's just dropped back in the USSR on them and now I saw her standing there. This is like emotional anguish. She's dropping on people here. Like, they, they, they weren't ready in 1989 for this. People should have had to, like, sign a, a musical waiver. Like, I'm not actually going to shit my pants when he starts playing some of these songs. Yeah. Yeah, you know... Okay, a couple things. Firstly... As someone who has seen Paul McCartney live, and as you can attest to as someone who's also seen him live, seeing Paul McCartney play I Saw Her Standing There is an experience <laughs> like no other. And, and, and it's a very distinctly... It's like, it's, 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 it's like losing your virginity, wasn't it? It was, it was incredible. It was well, it, it is. And, and it's a distinctly different experience than seeing him perform you know, Hey Jude or Let It Be, which is also a great, beautiful experience in and of itself. This is the song that kicks off the Beatles' entire career. And it, it's a perfectly crafted early rock and roll song. And, and yeah, I also, I grab Abbey Road, I grab the White Album, I grab Revolver. But kind of like we said when we were talking about Can't Buy Me Love, which is performed excellent on disc one here, or even like when I saw him and he pulled out All My Loving, it's like, man, you know, it, people get so caught up in, the innovation of the later records that they forget just how important it is that they were crafting these songs as well as they were. I mean, there aren't many songs better written than she loves you. I want to hold your hand. So on and so forth. And I am going to have some very, very positive things to say coming up. And I want to throw that out there because I hate to sound like Debbie Downer again, <laughs> but this particular recording of I Saw Her Standing There does not sound right to me. It doesn't rock. It's very stiff. I can't even say like, oh, it's not as good as the original because of course it's not as good as the original. It, it's not about that. It's about kind of, again, like we talked about in the last episode, recreating the energy of the original, whether or not that means doing a note perfect cover or completely turning it on its head. This does not for me capture the energy of the original and the energy is so important to this song. There are other great live versions of this song, uh, but this is for me, not the one I'm going to go for. See, it's funny you should say that because I felt like Chris Whitten was a real standout here in not only doing a really good impression of the Ringo beat, but also kind of exceeding it and elevating the material slightly. I, I felt like this really rocked, actually. Hmm. There was, yeah, there I, was, I, there was 
a pizzazz and a flair to this. Maybe maybe just because I felt like, you know, certain other parts of this set are a bit sluggish, but I don't know. I felt I, I felt like things were really picking up at this point and uh, everything was fun and jubilant and maybe he's, you know, resting on coattails a bit here, but there was nothing negative to say, you know. If you want to say kind of neutral, middling things, I'll kind of agree with you on that, perhaps. But there was nothing negative for me to comment here on at all. Yeah, again, I don't, I don't want to imply that it's horrible, awful, bad. To me, just listening to this, the, the word I kept saying in my head was stiff. This just feels stiff. And that's not necessarily indicative of, of Chris Witten's performance. I mean, Chris Witten is for me, one of the MVPs of this record. I mean, so, you know, some of the performances, again, we'll talk about coming up. He's absolutely masterful. You know, Stiff is is a band-wide uh, descriptor for me. This, I, it, it's, I'm not sure I can explain it any better than that. It, it It's never a matter of it being awful, just a matter of it that feels right to me. And this just doesn't feel right. Maybe it, it felt different in person uh, i know mm. it felt great to me when i was watching it in person and i know there are other recordings of it that sound fine to me i think the the princess trust version is is fine i think some of the more recent recordings are fine uh, but yeah i don't know this this one didn't do it for me but you know what sam we're allowed to disagree no we're not no we're not okay you, all right you, well all right stop stop the vote stop the count <laughs> Speaking of a song that you said was stiff, let's talk about a song that gives Paul a stiffy. This is the second of our Ayo. classic rock. Ayo. This is the second of our classic rock segments. It's a tune that uh, you know Paul has always had an affinity for. It is yet another Wembley gig and was recorded on the thirteenth of January nineteen ninety. The same show from which the Fool on the Hill recording was taken from on last episode. Is this the concert for Campuchia? Because this is 20 Flight Rock. Well, I got a girl with welcome machine when it comes to rocking. She's a queen to dance on Saturday night. All over, I can hold it tight. She lives on 24 count. The elevator's broken down. Of course, this is the classic Eddie Cochran, Ned Fairchild song, a real American rock and roll standard. Paul's been playing it ever since he could pick up a pick and a guitar. He played this during the Get Back sessions. He played it with Wings in 1979. And according to setlist.com, he even played it as recently as the summer of 2018. This is certainly a favourite of his. You missed the most important one. He played this when he met John Lennon, and he impressed John Lennon by knowing all the words to it. <gasps> That's in nowhere, boy. I forgot about that. Yeah, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's also in every Beatles history book. But yeah, let's oh, go with the Jared Leto film. 
Oh wait, that's not Jared Leto. No, J- uh, no, the Jared Leto film's the one where that's he plays chap- Mark David Chapman. Yeah, yeah that's chapter twenty-seven. Whatever, I rest my uh, case. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But yeah, obviously, if Paul's going to get a professional band together that are going to do whatever he says without bitching, then by Jove, is he going to get them to play this fucking song, Dylan? As much as I want to rag on the covers on this album, dude, he's ragging on your chord. And ha- and how much I want to kind of make fun of Paul being a bit of a dork for playing this kind of music. I've actually always been really endeared to the way that Paul plays this song, especially the uh, Chobber BCCP version. You know, this is the music he loves. As a fan of McCartney's own music, I can empathise with wanting to jam certain old rock and roll music that none of your mates care about. Uh, so here I'm, t- I'm totally on Paul's side. And more importantly, because Paul's been playing this longer than even he can probably remember, he fucking nails it. He just does. Dylan, yeah. respond. <laughs> yeah, they, they do a good job. I think uh, solo on this is really good. I think that this does a pretty good job of kind of doing what I was just saying, you know, recreating the energy. Uh, and, and for Paul, too, it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition there because a song like I saw for Standing There, he has the task of trying to recreate the energy of a song that he wrote, that he brought into this world, that he brought to these millions of people. Here, he's tasked with recreating the energy of a song that influenced him that has brought him so much joy not to say that his own compositions can't but it's it's a completely different relationship that you have with the song in some ways Mm. it's i don't want to say easier but i i do think it can be a much more attainable feat sometimes because you know how a song makes you feel i know for me if i'm playing to a crowd and i'm playing one of my songs i'm certainly trying my best to play it as well as I can. I want people to respond to it. I want to get across the message of the song. Then if I'm going to do a cover of a song I really love, yes, of course, I'm also going to try to play it as well as I can. But I'm so excited to play this song because I love it so much. That jubilancy is going to come out, I think, just a little more effortless sometimes. Um, Now, Paul is, of course, a master performer who can do that with all of his compositions and put a smile on his face. He could break out your absolute least favorite song, do it live. And probably by the end of it, you're thinking, okay, you won me over Paul because he's, he's so earnest with it or he's so into it. But I I think he does a really good job here. It's not my favorite cover. Uh, I, I mean, I love the original Eddie Cochran song. I, I do think I like this version slightly better than the Russian album. But yeah, this this is I think this is a step up from the last couple songs. I think we're slowly starting to realise and, and maybe you already thought this going into this, but when I started these couple of episodes with you, I was going into it thinking, oh, the covers are going to be the worst part of this. I'm going to be slagging them off. It's going to be really good fodder for for me to like write some funny jokes. I've been really enjoying them for the most part. Uh, like, more so than a lot of the actual like, Beatle and Solar McCartney classics. And we have to just get this out of the way, just so people don't think we're being kind of facetious. 
I am very aware that something you listen to for the first time that is fresh in your mind you think is better than something that might objectively be better than you've listened to for a long time. You know, Old Brown Shoe should not be as high up in my rankings <laughs> in Beatle or as it should be, but it was the last song of them of theirs that I heard. So, of course, it's kind of fresher in my brain, you know. But more importantly than that, I cannot believe we went into part one of this review with me not having put two and two together that the majority of the covers on this tour were actually from the Russian album. But well, you know, I knew that. Well, you knew that, but, you know, this isn't something about the Beatles we're talking about here, you know, folks? Um yeah, so I, I think that I think that most people uh, put me a mostly unknown friend of yours who's been on three shows and a couple two legs episodes on the same level as famed Beatles historian, author, and podcast host Robert Rodriguez. I've asked Tom Hanyadi to delete those episodes with you on, but you know, I've yeah, I've, I understand. Well, you're he, on one of them, so jokes on you. He's not been responding to my emails at all. Next up, we have another song that was also performed the last time Paul played 20 Flight Rock on tour. This was recorded on the 3rd of March and is another take from Tokyo, Japan. Like a flower, this is coming up. skeptical of this one because I felt that the truth of the matter was that the live version of this song is now the official way he was going to perform it you know the b-side of the single is the official way the crappy wings version however after the kooky little percussion uh, that kicks us off in the intro I knew right away that we were interested different here and in many ways, yes, this is still the wings arrangement and instrumentation, but we have all these silly little affectations and kind of flourishes from Chris Whitten uh, that really did remind me of the mood and the atmosphere of the McCartney 2 A-side single version of this song. And what we get as a result... Now, this might either please everyone or please no one, but it's an attempt from McCartney to kind of synthesise the A and the B-sides to come up with one single entity... But, shockingly, it's executed better than it really should have been. And instrumentally, it's all over the place in the best way. This is one to put on with a good pair of earphones and and just listen to what this band are doing and how they're all kind of mashing it together. I know that we've talked about Wixie a lot here. I I actually kind of think that his cheap-sounding MIDI keyboard that's probably on like some sort of Macintosh computer is entirely appropriate here because that's the McCartney 2 sound 
even though it might be at the expense of the rest of the gig? Well, Sam, firstly, I'm so happy for you that you like this. Um, very, very pleased for you. I'm going to read exactly word for word what I wrote in my notes here as I was listening to this song. And and I went back, I listened to everything here, I think, three times uh, in in preparation because, and and frankly, you should listen to something, I think, many more times than that Mm -hmm. if you're going to give a full review. But, you know, I've, I've heard this record many times over the years. This is just my revisiting, so... But this was my initial notes that I wrote, and I didn't feel anything that I had to add to it upon further listenings. Intro is dot, 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 something. Definitely 80s. Is that the right (laughs) lyric he comes in on? This is not cool at all. There is absolutely nothing cool about this. I bet it's fun as hell in person, but I don't particularly want to listen to this. I hate this breakdown. I hate it. I hate it so much. I hate this whole thing so much. I don't like the call and response with Hamish. I hate this so much. So that's where I'm at with this. Um, And I take great exception to you saying that anything about this harkens back to the original because the original album version of coming up is one of the most delightfully quirky recordings that has ever been committed to tape, as is a lot of stuff on that record. There's nothing quirky about this. There's nothing delightful about this. This is completely, terribly, bombastically (laughs) computerized and quote-unquote fun and danceable, which, again, perhaps in person it was. And maybe we've had this conversation before. I can't remember. But it's an interesting thing to think about, you know, what different people consider fun and what people, what different people want out of music. I'm not going to say that I don't find music fun. I think a lot of music is fun, but I don't particularly listen to music to have fun. I listen (laughs) to music for a lot of different reasons to be stimulated in a lot of different ways and for me something generally needs to be more than fun now of course it's different if i'm at a club and you know this is how we do it comes on yeah i'll start dancing and i'll have a good time i will never listen to that song in my spare time because that (laughs) is not enjoyable to me as a listening experience this is not enjoyable to me as a listening experience as a huge fan of the original song, I am personally offended by this version. The idea of only ever listening to a song in a club but never in your spare time, that pretty much sums up my entire experience with Sum 41, Blink-182 and Good Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, I still know every single lyric to Fat Lip, but that's another conversation for another time. See, I always think Fat Lips by Limp Biscuit because they say Fat Lip in Break Stuff. Can we live with the Fat Lip? And I always get that wrong. But, uh, I can't believe we'll it. save it for the Limp Biscuit podcast. The Limp Biscuit podcast. Uh, I don't know. I'd call it like Dead Worst or something like that. <laughs> there's, there's something in there. But yeah. anyway, like I said, I, you know, 
I don't mean to disparage anyone for liking no, this. You're not, I, you're, you're not. You're not because the vocals not particularly good on this track. It does let the team down. Uh, we didn't need any of that that gruff growl. It does kind of leak in a little bit. I hate to sound like an annoying neighbour, but Paul's just a bit too loud on this one. Maybe he should have used like a vocoder voice box or something like that to be like a, a bit weird or funny or something. something. Well, you, th- this is what I'll say, and, and we'll probably just disagree here based off the comment that you just made. I think it would be virtually impossible to recreate truly the, the energy of the original recording live by trying to play the original recording. I think if it's going to be done live, it should be done like the Wings version. And and when he's gone back to this in recent years, he's done it closer to the Wings version live. I think that is the best way to get this song across live. I think it's a thousand times better than this. And I think the album version is still even better than anything else. But that's just me personally. That's interesting. So for me, the album that couldn't be reproduced live was Flowers in the Dirt. But for you, it's stuff from McCartney too. That's interesting. Well, what's he ever... He's only ever done two songs from that album live. He did Temporary... And Temporary Secretary works... I think that's easier to recreate live because... With that song, you know, with coming up, you have a lot of those different horn lines. And whereas Temporary Secretary really is based around, you know, the the synth loop, guitar, bass and drums. So it's Mm -hmm. easy, I think, for the rock band to do that. For coming up, I think trying to recreate that particular album version live exactly as it is would be futile. I don't think that it would come across the right way, which is why I find the Wings version, even though I don't like it nearly as much, is probably the correct way to do it live. For me. For for my taste, I should say. Well, if Paul ever needs someone to help him do the clavs on Secret Friend, he knows where to call me. <laughs> I will... You know, I've... I've definitely practice that with a pencil on a school desk many a time and i will happily do some of the background vocals to dark room anytime so i didn't know this um i put this on the twitter the, the, the other day so all of the extended versions of the mccartney 2 songs that were not even available on most bootlegs are all just available on mccartney's youtube page like released this year mm-hmm. no one informed me no one <laughs> knows it no one said, oh, Sam, by the way, the longer version of Dark Room is just legally available for you to listen to right now. I was hey, Sam, upset. just so you know, the longer version of Dark Room is legally <laughs> available for you to listen to right now. Oh I know, gosh. I know. You heard it here first. Heard it here first, folks. Pressing fourth. And did somebody say unnecessary cover version? Yes. Yes, they did, Dylan. Uh this was recorded on the 21st of January 1990, and again, it's from Bloody Wembley Arena, you This is Sally. Sally, Sally, bride of our alley, you're more than the whole world to me. Sally, Sally, don't ever wander away from 
the alley and me. So, ladies and gentlemen, Reginald Dixon of the Blackpool Tower Come on, Reg. forgiven for thinking that this was the b-side from junior's farm but no instead once again we have another entry from the great american songbook this time made famous by the singer gracie fields written by will e hayes harry leon leo towers and ned fairchild the same ned fairchild who also wrote 20 flight rock though this weirdly enough wasn't one of the covers that was part of the russian album I'm just going to ask you one question here, dude. Why wasn't you gave me the answer here? Why wasn't Babyface here? Why wasn't when the red, red robin comes bob, bob, bobbing along put here? You know, something remotely upbeat, exciting, interesting, anything to gear us up for the next song in the set, you know? <laughs> well, this was, I believe, hey, please correct me if I'm wrong, a sound check recording. I don't think this was performed in a the concert proper. Uh, I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I'm usually wrong. Uh, probably half the people listening to this podcast uh, think I'm wrong. But you know what, Sam? I really like Sally. I love this vocal. I love the vocal. Wicks on the organ is crushing it. This sounds so much more fun to me than the forced fun on some of the other songs, like the one that was just before this. Like, which, granted, yeah, during sound check, you're messing around. It's silly. But, like, that's being funny is literally a part of all of the Beatles. Like, all four of them are intrinsically funny people and that's that's truly why I've, I've had when people say like oh well revolver would be perfect if you know yellow submarine wasn't on it or abbey road would be perfect if her majesty wasn't at the end of the medley it's like no 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 no. like that is a part of them this is paul completely messing around and i think that's perfect and i think it's so much more like i said it's if we're talking about fun like this is what I want out of something that's fun. Guys who are actually having fun and you can hear it. Coming up doesn't sound fun to me. Coming up sounds very, very calculated in all the worst ways. So give me Sally, Sam. I don't know. This is, for me, a bad song performed badly. I've just (laughs) checked on uh, the paulmccartneyproject.com, a fantastic resource. And it does cite it as being a song performed on that day, but it's not in the set list. So, yeah, you, you are right. It must be <clears throat> it must be a little uh, sound check tune. But even so, it feels like wasted space on the record, especially considering the tracks we'll be talking about later. I don't know. I don't like Paul in that sleazy lounge barroom <laughs> mode. Like... As a Tom Waits podcaster, I can say with some authority that other people do that better. <laughs> that's that's fair. That's fair. I mean, I, I like it, but yeah, I, I'm not going to go out claiming that this is uh, 
pure McCartney here. Moving on. And if your guess for the next song was another Beatles classic, you'd be right. That's a very safe bet from this point onwards. This is Let It Be from Miami. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. In my darkest hour, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. played this one 12 times with Wings on the tour of theirs that caused him to end the band and then he played it during his <laughs> A great selling point if there ever was one. <laughs> Tell me about it. Then he plays it at the disastrous Live Aid performance in 85 so just top of the review I just want to say good for you Paul for not letting that keep you down well done for not blaming the song or anything but, <laughs> This was a chore to sit through. Oh my gosh. Like, not only have I already heard a million other versions of this song done better on other gigs, I mean, fucking hell, he did this song better in 2018 when I saw him at the age of 76. And we've just got this vocal growl thing that makes one of of his most tender songs just wrong. It, it It just makes it wrong. This isn't done particularly well at all. And there's a, a, a bit that he sings towards, you know, he goes, there's still a light that shines on me. He goes, there's still a light that shines on me. Like, he does that. He sounds like he'd be running out of batteries or something. <laughs> and then you get a new solo, like one of the most iconic Beatles solos. They're not a band really known for solos, because Let It Be is one of them. And imagine being George Harrison, you know, you finally do that fucking solo for that fucking Paul McCartney. Whatever you want me to do, I'll play it. And then the first time he plays it live, <laughs> the man who would not allow Henry McCullough to do anything too jazzy with the My Love solo. Yeah, do whatever you want with George's Let It Be solo. I don't, I don't give a fuck. Just do whatever. He lets him improvise. That left a bad taste in my mouth, but that is just me thinking a bit too much about it. What did you think uh, overall, uh, yeah, not at all my favorite performance of this song. The absolute, in my mind, best live performance of this song, again, is easily Amoeba Gig. Wow. Where he is taking some liberties with the vocal melody, but not in an unnecessary way or an annoying way. And, I, and actually, I'll say this, because, yes, George's album solo, for me, I mean, I, some people, every now and then you meet the occasional person who think the single version solo is better, which blows my mind, because the mm-hmm. album version solo is where it's at. 
And that is the solo that Rusty Anderson recreates on stage every night and has done so for the last 20 years. And, you know, it's good and it's fine. Um, I, I mean, I should, no, it's, it's really, really great. I get what you're saying. I actually kind of like, I, I'm not going to say I like the solo. I do not like this solo. <laughs> the tone is terrible. The actual solo is not great, but conceptually I like act, that he did something different because Paul so often, again, like he literally has to have the airplane sound effect before back in the USSR. He's so committed to recreating these things and every now and then it's like look man just just go for it you know the the great thing about a band like zeppelin is you listen to a thousand different versions of stairway you know which i mean there's not a lot more iconic solos in stairway to heaven (laughs) jimmy page plays that different every time you know i i respect that i respect the improvisational nature of live music and I, I think we all wish that Paul would do that a little more, whether it's improvising more with the set lists or actually within the songs. So I don't mind necessarily that it's a different solo. I mind that this is the solo we got. Because <laughs> if you listen to the Amoeba gig version, that is an improvised solo. Uh, it's like probably the only time that Rusty's ever gotten to fucking play that song and play his own solo. And it is awesome. It is I think the most emotional vocal and musical performance of that song uh, that has ever been played by Paul McCartney since the beat. I mean, I shouldn't say more emotional because I'm sure it was extremely emotional for him. He, he played it at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when he was inducted as a solo artist. And that was, I think, uh, just under a year after Linda had been gone. I'm sure that was very emotional, but... Anyway, all this to say, yeah, this version isn't that good. <laughs> TLDR, the long and the short. Yeah, 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 too long didn't read. Y'all can fast forward, you know, retroactively. Next up, Dylan. And as a shock to no one, we have yet another cover by Paul and the band. This is from another gig at the Tokyo Dome that took place on the 9th of March, 1990. This is Ain't That a Shame. But I was in New Orleans. I met Fats Domino. He said, I want to tell you something. I said, what is it? He said, you made me cry. You said. So this song was made famous by Fats Domino, which he co-wrote with one Dave Bartholomew. Of course, Fat Domino was a huge influence on the Beatles themselves, and Lennon himself played a version of this song on the 1975 album Rock and Roll. We will talk about that shortly. On his end, though, 
Paul also covered I'm In Love Again and I'm Gonna Be A Wheel Someday, two other Fats Domino tunes that were both on Not Called Chobber, the uh, Russian album. And we've discussed a lot of covers here today, Dylan. And the key distinction we've touched on is that if they're good, if they're fun, if they don't outstay their welcome and they're sequenced correctly, then of course there's not going to be such thing as too many of them. And this song's a great example of that. I fucking love this one. I was trying to be coy earlier. (laughs) Like, Paul knocks it out of the park with this one. It's pure rock and roll. And I'm sure he thought all the other covers sounded this good. Like, his vocal here is just crazy. Like, Mm -hmm. this is what the 90s growl was meant to be like as well, but that didn't quite work out either. Honestly, not only does he do this better than the John Lennon 1975 version, which I think is tripe, this is, for me, better than the Fats Domino version. Mm. I I think it's certainly better than the album version on on the Russian album, and I think it's it's better than John's. I I have a soft spot for the Fats Domino version, but I, I understand where you're coming from. I think this is very clearly the best uh, Paul McCartney version of it. Like you said, vocal is solid and much better than his vocal on the album. The fake horns work here. They sound really good here. Yeah, the solo is yeah. yeah the, the solo is fantastic. The energy is really kicking on this one. I mean, this is uh, yeah, this is probably the best solo on on yeah. the whole thing for me. Yeah, totally agree. You're so right. I'm really glad you said that. This is a song that I've shown other people like without fear of embarrassment. I'm like, this is a fucking great Paul McCartney rock and roll cover. Have a drink and listen to this. You know, this is exactly what I want if I'm going to be, ha- you know, ha- if I have to sit through Paul McCartney covers from his own childhood that he cares about that I might not care about, but he wants to teach me. He's <laughs> he's done a fantastic job here. I'm now interested outside of you know listening to My Blue Heaven over and over again because I watched a movie of the same name. <laughs> Yeah, I was really happy with this one. I've played it over and over again. And once more, I'm like, oh, wow, these single, uh, oh, wow, these covers are actually interesting me a lot more than a lot of the solo McCartney stuff, which is quite worrying, actually. No, I understand. And and you bring up a good point, too, man. I think that the great thing about well-known artists doing covers in general or, or, you know, talking about their influences is is that that leads to the you know younger generations or people who just aren't as educated to to learn about you know the 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 forefathers and the foremothers of the genre i mean without paul mccartney and without the beatles i would not be the huge buddy holly and chuck berry fan that i am mm. without without the white stripes i wouldn't be blind Willie McTell fan that I am. I mean, that's the amazing, and even, you know, again, people like to very understandably and, and warranted, you know, shit on Led Zeppelin for all the music that they stole or they didn't credit, but, you know, to their credit, they admitted it in a bunch of interviews and they talked about it openly. Like, yeah, you know, took this from Muddy Waters, took this from Willie Dixon and, you know, think about how many people. No, it, it's certainly not right that they didn't give them the songwriting credits initially. That they should have, and that's certainly another conversation for another time. But 
I mean, here you are, Sam Wiles, big Fats Domino fan now because of Paul McCartney. That's a beautiful thing. So a, f- a few years ago, I was in New Orleans. <laughs> I met Fats Domino, and like he expects the crowd to give it the, to, like a huge woo. And, like, yeah, he, and they, it gets nothing. <laughs> <laughs> like two people go, woo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool, Paul. But this is a great bit of showmanship. There, he says. He told me something. Do you know what he said? He said, "You made bow bow." That's fucking great. That was expertly oh. executed. Once more into the breach, gentlemen, and um, this is the last solo Macca song today. Sadly, but it's one hell of a track. This took place on the twenty eighth of September, nineteen eighty nine, and was recorded at the Scandinavium in Gothenburg, Sweden. You used to say live and let live, but this is live and let die. When you were young and your heart was an open book, you used to say live and let live. You know you did, you know you did, you know you did. If this ever changing world in which we live in makes you. and setup was defined over a decade prior and it's comforting to see that literally nothing has changed about it whatsoever <laughs> except the fireworks maybe like oh, like you know the sun rises in the east it sets in the west gravity might be from another dimension live and let die is always performed in this exact same way these are <laughs> these are the facts that we know you know the sky is blue there are going to be big fireworks and explosions. And if you are one of these disgusting casual fans that doesn't even know that there's 17 different versions of McCartney 3 for you to purchase, you seeing the fireworks on stage when McCartney does Live and Let Die is just going to make you crap your pants, isn't it? I, yeah. I can't, I can't have a go at it in terms of function. In terms of function, it's, it's, it's flawless. It's form... It's a little repetitive. It's kind of up there with Band on the Run and Jet and stuff. But there's something about it, Dylan, that just keeps it slightly fresh. And maybe it's just the bombastic showmanship whereby he kind of ramps it up every tour. Like, I think he's going to drop a nuclear warhead on his next tour. Like, just never <laughs> let Dad. White, white light, millions dead. Like that is the only way he can really top it at, the, at, at, at this point. But um, hell, that's the only way I want to go out at this point. Uh, that'd be fucking great, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh God, are you kidding me? That that that's the dream. You know, man. I mean, you can hear and feel the fireworks in this you version. Can, I mean, and, and and it's not cheesy. Not for me, at least. I think the energy is absolutely spectacular. 
I think this is a true highlight of this record. And yes, you're you're absolutely right. It's as overplayed as anything else. But when it's so expertly executed, when the voice is this solid, when when Chris Witten is slaying it on the drums like this, when the energy across the board from everyone instrumentally and vocally is this high, I, I, what do you want? I mean, this, this is great. I would listen to this live version of this song. I, I love it. I think it's spectacular. I don't know if it's the best version of this song, but it's definitely the little reggae interlude in the middle. It might be my favorite version of that little bit. It was just so cute. Yeah, very solid. The only thing it's missing is he doesn't say ladies and gentlemen after saying live and let die. You know, say live and let die, ladies and gentlemen. Like the, the way he just kind of slips it in like that. That, 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 that for me is a little Easter egg that was sorely missing. I I thought you were going to say the only thing missing uh, was him introducing Axl Rose and I was going to immediately have to leave this podcast because... <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Roger Moore. Ugh, <laughs> I, I'll take take that, man. I bet he sings better than Axl. It is to say, live and let live, money, Penny. Our next song, Dylan, isn't really a song, more of a... <laughs> Uh, a link to another bigger song. But either way, it's pretty fun for what it's worth, and I've been really excited to talk about it. This was recorded on the 12th of Feb, 1990, though in the original booklet, it was incorrectly dated as the 26th of September. This was held at the Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati. This is If I Want Not Up On The Stage... I'll tell you what, there's a bit at the end of this next song coming up here that you might want to join in with, okay? See how you feel. If I were not upon the stage, if I don't sound like you. If I were not upon the stage, and Andrew driving me. You need me? Hey, hey, no, no, hey, no, hey. No, no, that's... That's not the one I meant, no, 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 we don't do that one, what I meant to say, what I meant to say. So, for anyone who doesn't know, this song is only 36 seconds long, and it's basically a gag. Paul tricks the audience into thinking he's going to play some old vaudeville show tune, and he goes, oh, no, oh, oh, well, he goes into Hey Jude, which we'll go on to shortly. For a 30-second skit, Dylan, I straight up loved this one. (laughs) I, I think it's hilarious. It's another great example of showmanship, especially considering the song it leads into that he may not have played live in front of any of these people ever at all, most likely not ever. And it's a great example of that huge Paul McCartney, immense old-timey songbook that's in the back of his brain. I didn't know about If I Were Not Upon the Stage, but I went and had a look, and there are covers on YouTube, and the only versions I could find are this song as an act like being performed and people come on stage and they're like if i were not upon the stage i'd be a policeman if i were not upon the stage i'd be a milkman and then at the end of each round of the verse they all do this kind of funny little movement but then once a new person's been added to the list you realize that all the movements are synchronized and they do it like it's like a big round you know 
like one of them will duck and then you realize that the one to their right kicks their leg where at the exact time they're ducking it's very camp very cheesy pure you know walking through the park with eloise type material mm. this was a real highlight for me Dylan. yeah i think it's brilliant and i think there's so much brilliant about it certainly the fact that he like you said decided to set up probably the biggest most anticipated song that he would play that night <laughs> for for the for the first time live in, in front of however many thousands of people tens of thousands of people with this with with a gag in general and you've probably done more research on it than i have but I don't think that this particular gag is extremely well known. No. So what's brilliant what's brilliant about it to me, like it's not like he was doing a famous Monty Python skit. It's not like he was about to break into the aristocrats, although that <laughs> would have also been fantastic. But something like that, people know what's going on. Here, not only are they not expecting, you know, after his introduction for it to be a gag, but the gag is also something that probably will definitely, I'm going to say 99% of people, if not a hundred percent of the audience do not understand whatsoever. That is <laughs> absurdist humor at its best. I love everything about it. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sure this track is huge in Cincinnati. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't uh, check the location of the video you sent me, but I thought it was British. Oh, that 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 might, well, the one on the albums from Cincinnati, anyway. Yes, I know that, which would make it even better if this is like distinctly a British thing. The fact that he's doing it in Cincinnati is is that much better. No, um, the the other thing I like I liked about it as well was. I kind of wanted the rest of the song to carry on. Like, I, I, I wouldn't have minded <laughs> have, have waiting Linda two do minutes. One and have Hamish do one. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and then Daddy Lane comes out. And hey. Then Steve, Elvis Costello Steve comes Holly. back out. Yeah. Yeah, every, everyone. George Martin's there. Yep. My God. that it. Um, have, you, have you ever watched any of... Um, the Ruttles live when they do um, music for the head ballet and they do this little routine where they sit down and just look left, look forward, look right to the beat of the music and it's this stupid little routine and it's this highlight that everyone looks forward to and I wish Paul would do more stuff like this, like weird little uh, vaudeville 1920s borderline Al Jolson stuff that no one's ever heard of. It makes him a little more in- interesting than your average bear, there, Bobo. <laughs> I agree. I'm I'm always always a proponent of Paul uh, reaching back in the catalog, being humorous. I mean, it's the same thing, you know, when when he does Babyface, when he br- breaks out a lot of these things live, even just for two seconds. He rarely does it anymore, uh, except in very intimate settings. But who knows? Maybe. Uh, Paul's post-pandemic touring plans, if there are any, will change him a little bit. But more than likely, they won't. Sadly, he's never done Babyface as well as he did uh, during the one-hand-clapping show. Like, he, he does a kind of, like, jauntier version. I was like, Babyface, dun-dun-dun, you got the cutest... But the original one's like, 
face. Like it's a little more aggressive, and he's never done it well, quite, I, the, quite the same way since, sadly. Well, I will once again point you to the Amoeba gig, uh, where really? he pulls out Babyface. So, but again, we'll get to that another. This is a chronological podcast. God damn it. Uh, well, maybe if you weren't wasting so much time getting off the ground out, Sam. <laughs> Come on, we're waiting for it. When when I went back through all the old episodes, uh, when I got my new thumbnail, I kind of updated a lot of the descriptions of the episodes because they had <laughs> things that think things like "still waiting to get the tug of war" episode out. I'm like, I can't have future gen- generations read of my laziness. I'm just that- gonna ed- I'm just gonna edit this crap out. Well, we, we're, we're waiting for Off the Ground, so make it happen. Following on, and this is a song that needs no in- introduction, because I mentioned it in the last song. Uh, this was recorded on the 12th of February 1990 and took place at the Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati again, Ohio, I didn't mention before. Uh, this is Hey Jude. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Dig a sad song and make it better Remember to let her into your heart Then you could start to make it better Hey Jude, don't be argue dylan this is peak time to hear a song like this obviously he hasn't done it live since the david frost show in 68 you could probably smell the scent of urine after everyone's wet themselves after he plays this you would not want to go to the toilet you'd gladly you know lose a pair of jeans again not not saying it's the best performance of this song ever but the atmosphere must have been indescribable yeah Though like let uh, though like live and let die, it's interesting to see, or you know how deep into familiar territory we are with this gig. Like, you could pretty much put this on back in the U.S. or Good Evening New York City, and there wouldn't mm-hmm. be that many people that would notice all that much difference. I reckon like this is just him doing Let It Be from now on, really. Sure. Although this performance, I think, is uh, astronomically better than Let It Be. I think his his vocal is extremely solid here. All the background vocals are great. Linda sounds great. Hamish sounds great. You know, I, I know that people are sick of this song and he plays it every time. And how many times can you hear this song? But it's so undeniably one of the best songs ever written. And what an opportunity it must have been to see him sing it when his voice still sounded like this. Exactly, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I agree. I, I think the energy here is great. It's absolutely peak time in the set list for it. It's performed fantastic. And yes, it has 
you know, the the cliche, you know, everyone here on the right, everyone here, oh, now just the boys, now just the girl, and I get it, and I make fun of it as much as anyone else, and I've sent the Onion article around that says unhinged Paul McCartney into seventh hour of Hey Jude Sing Along, and yes, I, I get it, it's wonderful, but, you know, it, it does, I think this is one of the instances on the record where the poignancy of the moment really hits you because again, we, we haven't talked about it in a while. We briefly touched upon it in part one, but it, it can't go. We can't go without stating that this really was the first time in almost 20 years that Paul was bringing the magic of the Beatles to a live setting. You know, certainly the 75-76 Wings tour was a different kind of magic that was also amazing, and he played some Beatles songs, but this was different. Everything about this was different. This is the post-John Lennon world. There's so much that's happened at this point, and I think in some ways I actually disagree with you because whereas, you know, back in the U.S. or Good Evening New York City probably have perfectly great live versions of Hey Jude. This is really the first. And I I think you can kind of hear it here. There is a poignancy to this that's really, really touching to me. I would agree, especially with the audience reaction. In terms of, I don't mean to backpedal or anything, but I do just mean that this is the version of Hey Jude that he's going to play in terms sure. of arrangement from now on. Uh, yes, it's, yes. It's, it, it's very recognisable in that sense. Yeah, and he's also clearly developed the taste for back-ending his shows with his best material. Yeah, it's it, it's it's not like oh, you know, Paul McCartney. He opens with like "Hey Jude, Let It Be," "Long and Winding Roads." Like, no, he knows how to keep the audience going. Is he going to play it? Is he going to play? It? Is it? Is he? Is and then he does it, and it's everything you want. Yeah, and I, I also do love just from a post-production standpoint at the end when he keeps saying, you know, and you were great, and you were great. I love that the vocal is panning <laughs> so you can actually hear he's talking to the left side of the crowd here. He's talking to the right side of the crowd here. I thought that was a nice little touch on this. Yeah, and, 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 then, and then there's that weird audio effect where he's saying, and now the men, and somehow the CD only plays to men at that point. And women can't hear. Yes, it. yeah, and and I've noticed that whenever he says all the women, it it does seem to go quiet for about uh, ten seconds for me. Never understood that. That's not on the BeatlesBible.com, is it? <laughs> That's all or nothing only content, folks. Now our next song, Dylan, is another song that I would not want to be caught going to the toilet during. This is one that Paul has indeed played before, for obvious reasons. This took place on the 9th of Feb 1990 and was at the Forum again in Montreal, Canada. This is yesterday. Oh, this is a good place to be. Yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe 
feeling right now folks but what more can be said about Paul doing a solo live performance of yesterday on an acoustic guitar rather like live and let die it's pretty all encompassing as to how a kind of oppressively iconic it is um, let, let's let's start off with an easy question Dylan what do you think of Wixie's synth string arrangement here I think they sound okay yeah I, I, I don't I don't have a problem with it I think that Paul's vocal sounds good. My only issue is that it's not the whole song. That is a bit of an issue, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is a bit of an issue that it's one of the greatest songs of all time and he doesn't play the whole thing. Yeah, it's it's, uh, an interesting rendition of the track. Was it about time, maybe? Like, oh, I could only go for 2 hours and 48 minutes. I can't go for 2.49. (laughs) You know, uh, was it because it, it had just followed Hey Jude and he just didn't think that humans could take such a, a, a double hitter? Because, like, you know, just just like the sequencing of this is pure genius, you know, uh, Hey Jude to, yes, to, 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 to yesterday. Not many other artists, again, can do something like that, can they? No. What I'd like to go back and do is see if he did this truncated performance of it every night. It wouldn't really make sense if this was a one-time thing or an occasional thing, and then he would choose to put it on the record. I would have to imagine he did it like this every night in order for it to be documented here on the official live album of the tour, but that is research that I did not do because I am an amateur Ladies and gentlemen, no, I don't say that anymore. Everyone, Th- folks, pl- everyone, folks, please email in at pod at gmail.com if you know the answer to that question. Did Paul play the wrong version of Yesterday across this whole tour, or are there YouTube clips that are freely available that we can go and check out for ourselves that might have a better one? I know there's a video called The Alternative, uh, for Tripping the Life Fantastic, and it's just got other recordings of every song from other gigs. So we should be able to solve that one as soon as we've finished recording this episode. <laughs> yeah, the one thing I really took away from this one, you know, besides the fact that this is just Paul doing yesterday, I can't, <laughs> I, I can't give it much more praise than, than, every, than anyone else has heaped upon it. But what stood out to me was this song gets such a huge cheer. Well, no. There's such a huge cheer moment in this song, and it's from the most generic phrase an artist can possibly say to like a town that he's visiting. Paul says, "This is a great place to be," and the fucking Bostonians lose their shit. 
they act like they 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 act like fucking Bill Burr just won the lottery or something. It's it's insane. Listen, us us New Englanders are very very prideful of our uh, of our heritage. So they don't, act like don't Jack hate. Nicholson just bought them a comic book in a in a in a shop and gave them the change. You know, I don't I want love... my set list to be a product of me. I want I me love... to be a product of McCartney's set list. I love so much that your entire knowledge of the city of Boston comes from one Martin Scorsese. Well, I was going to say, no, I know the Dropkick Murphy song, but that's in oh. The Departed, so... Yeah, there you go. There you go. I know how to say Boston, but that's about it. Yeah, you are. You no, are no, 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 no. It's Boston. Oh no no! Uh, uh, no, did I say Boston in like a New York accent? Yeah, yeah. you said Boston. Yeah, you Boston. went New York. It's Boston. Oh no! Hang on. The fucking Goodwill Hunting. That's Boston, isn't it? Yes, it is. There you <laughs> yeah. go. Wow! There look, look go. at you. So yeah, two two fucking Matt Damon movies. <laughs> so uh, George Harrison, how about these apples? Do you get it? Yay. <laughs> Oh my god, <laughs> that, that that might be the worst joke of the episode. I should have a little klaxon for that, like, this is the worst joke of the episode, and like a little theme plays. Well, this is just the worst podcast of all time, so I love it. Well, pfft, I mean, you can go back to fucking two legs if you want some. hey <laughs> Mount Baldy. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Next up. The string of A-tier Beatles material remains ever unbroken, as was the circle in the early 1972 wing set list. That's an obscure joke. This was once again held at Tokyo Dome and was taken from the 13th of March 1990. This is Get Back. another song I may or may not have been talking about on another undisclosed project that I may or may not be doing so please take the floor with this one <laughs> uh, well firstly I could do without all the whoa whoa yeah yeahs beforehand uh, that was I think that's something again totally fine when you're in the moment that I just don't need to hear it no Dylan fuck Paul's crowd work it's, it's awful whoa 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 Whoa, whoa, whoa. Paul, I paid seven billion pounds to come see you. Stop wasting my time. I mean, it's it's just not something I need to hear on my home speakers, really. But much like 
back in the USSR, uh, every live version of this has always sounded kind of the same to me. I never dislike it, but it's also never something that I'm going to seek out, and it's never something that I'll prefer over the original. In the context of this album, and certainly the concert or any concert, it is totally fine. It's great. You know, it, I, I think it's a fun song. I like Get Back. Uh, but overall, I don't find it to be an overly remarkable or impressive performance. Not not saying it's they play it badly or it's unimpressive, but I, I don't get the emotional response from this that I get from Can't Buy Me Love or Hey Jude. I mentioned it in the last episode. Uh, I was quoting David Hepworth or Mark Ellen from the Word podcast about how the Rolling Stones have never performed Satisfaction correctly since the day they recorded it and one of the main ways they do that is by playing it too fast and here they've quickened the pace for no good reason whatsoever and it's not like the the fast version that we spoke about when we discussed the Let Be documentary where they kind of add a bit more grit and make it a little heavier it's mm-hmm. just it, it's just them straight up playing it at an incorrect speed. I don't know what was going on here. Like, this is borderline, like maybe I'm amazed levels of not playing it like the album track for me. I think this is a song without at all truly trying to disparage Linda McCartney Hamish Stewart, Chris Witten, Robbie McIntosh, Rusty Anderson, Brian Ray, Abel Boreal, Paul Wickens. I think that there are five guys who knew how to play this song. It was John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Billy Preston, and Ringo Starr. Oh, well, I know. You know what, though? Wixie's Billy Preston impression is pretty it's good. flawless. It, 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 it's it, it good. It put a smile on my face, it did. Yeah, it, it, like, and again, I've heard a lot of live performance of this song that are good. They're fine. They are passable. And when you're there... Dude, and not when, when I saw him. Not when I fucking saw him, he wasn't. It was fucking terrible. They, the, Ronnie Wood and Ringo looked pissed when they came on stage. Oh, <laughs> you were at that show. Yeah, wow. in London 20, 20, 2018. It's not good wow. at all. It's really bad. <laughs> Yeah, it's not great, um, but, you know, there are other live versions that <laughs> are good, that are fine, that are passable. Um, it's just a song, you know, when I saw him do it, I was so happy that I was seeing Paul fucking McCartney sing Get Back. I, I was so pleased, and I'm so happy for anyone to have that experience. When I am... Listening to Tripping the Live Fantastic, the 1990 Paul McCartney live record as a product of the time from from a standpoint of, you know, part critic, part music Mm. fan, part Paul McCartney Beatles enthusiast. This comes across to me as fine and completely inconsequential. As a man... With a consummate stutter, I did enjoy how Paul added uh, how Paul added a little stutter to the closing outro. Oh yeah, he went all of my generation on it. It was great. You don't know how much I loved my generation growing up. You'll have you'll have <laughs> no idea. 
for our penultimate track, or tracks, I should say. Uh, this really should be of no surprise to anyone. This was recorded on the 7th of December 89 and took place at the Sky Dome in Maple Leaf Gardens, Toronto, Canada. This is the Abbey Road Mini Medley, a.k.a. Golden Slumbers, Carry That Weight and The End. I want to introduce you to my wife, Gertrude Higgins. My hearted motherfucker not to get a little emotional when Paul gives Linda that little shout out at the beginning right? Oh it's great and I actually I think it's kind of funny that they edited all of the different introductions together from all the different shows and languages I, I think that that's it's it's funny but it's it's also simultaneously very beautiful. Oh so I did interpret it that way for me it was the rest of the band is that all Paul's vocal then? Oh, that's what I thought it was. You, you might be right, though. I'll have to go check on that. Obviously, we've all done our research, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is the closing Paul McCartney medley. We know it by this point. It is as ubiquitous as yesterday and, let, and, and live and let die by this point. The one thing I do have to say, though, and I always hate agreeing with my guests because it's ne- it, it 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 doesn't make for, for entertaining pod- podcasting. But fuck me, a Wix's horns bad on this one. Can I can I read you exactly what I wrote in my notes here? Go on. <laughs> I wrote. Well, at, at first off, top when Golden Slumbers is playing, I was just saying, you know, don't love the belly sound of the piano little bit 80s on the drums but it could be worse and then going into golden or carry that weight and then the you never give me your money reprise i have written in all capital letters horns oh no (laughs) really the best you could do why god why 
It sounds like a Nintendo Entertainment Systems version of Golden Slumber's Care That Way in the End. Literally four songs before, Ain't That a Shame sounds completely fine. Other songs on this concert sound completely fine. And then for the most important song, they blow it. They blow the horn tones. They're terrible, and that whole section is not great. I'm sorry, I have to say it one more time. Paul and Hamish doing the You Never Give Me Your Money reprise, I do not think they sound good together at all. There's no blend there. It's, It's not solid for me. I will say, though, rushing to this song's defense when we do get to the end things do start picking up again and we do see mm-hmm. the electric results of Paul having this semi all-star rock band backing him it does start to all make sense at that point but getting there is yeah. it's a bit well, of a challenge e- well even the transition even the transition to the end it sounds like they're hesitating it doesn't sound all that great but I agree with you. Uh, the solos are really great. I was fully expecting, like, after everything else, I was fully expecting to get the full complement of, you know, the flangy, chorusy, over-compressed 80s guitar tones, but these tones are actually pretty damn good, and and and, and I, I think it sounds awesome. And, and again, MVP here, Chris Witten, killing it uh, across the solo section. Simultaneously holding down the beat while, you know, kind of stepping out a little bit of the main groove and, and doing some flashier fills that really, really work. It's interesting that the only two songs on the Beatles rock band that I can remember that really had drum solos were Birthday and this song at <laughs> the end. And both times it's when Paul has Chris Witten with him. So that's, uh, that's interesting. Uh, may- maybe he foresaw something there. You gotta use the boost now for extra points, Chris. Go. I'm sure that was the first thing on his mind. <laughs> it's interesting that this ends the show, though. Um, for me, it never ends with the end. There's only two more encores after this point, but that actually isn't represented at all on this album, bar one last little coda. And Dylan, last but not least, we have a little sound check to sign us off. This final recording took place on the 9th of December, 89, and had the pleasure of being held at the Forum in Montreal, Canada. This is another mouthful, actually. This is Don't Let the Sun Catch You Crying. Anyone near F major? Two, three, four. Don't let the sun catch you crying. Crying on my front door You done died dirty now And honey, he ain't gonna love you no more Don't let the sun catch you crying Crying on my front door. Now, as many people probably did, 
I thought this was a cover of the Jerry and the Pacemakers song of the same name, especially since you know they were one of Paul's contemporaries back in the day before he left them in the dust where they belong. Basically, the lyrics didn't match, so I assumed maybe it's some sort of improvised noodle from Paul or something. However, this track goes back to 1946. It was written and performed by the jazz artist Louis Jordan and is not featured on the Russian album. It turns out, though, we actually have a little recording of this track from the Get Back sessions. And before we get into this track, Dylan, I just thought, for a little giggle, I thought we'd take a listen. Now, I didn't ask you this question during Ain't That A Shame, because we had this song coming up, and because Ain't That A Shame is actually really good. But by this point, Dylan, have we had too many covers from the classic American songbook here? Well, uh, I'm biased because I have always loved the Ray Charles version of this song. And I think that Paul does a good job with the vocal here. It's a beautiful song, and I strangely dig this as a closer because to me it kind of feels like you know this album opened with showtime you know paul Mm -hmm. walking up to the stage this very much feels like a song that you might be hearing over the speaker as you're walking out of the venue so i think it conceptually like a live show this makes sense to me uh, uh, to close out the album it's difficult to say because again like ain't that a shame is a solid performance 20 flight rock is a decently solid performance cracking up i i wish they had included the whole version of it because it's good but you get into that argument of well what are we sacrificing here because as much as i love you know his performances of those songs was there another great beatles song or even more importantly for me is there another solo song that he could have fit in here um because really we've talked about the solo material that he's done on here, but outside of the Flowers material, which granted there's, you know, what, six six songs from Flowers, maybe seven, which is solid and that's nice. But outside of that, what do we have? We have Maybe I'm Amazed, Band on the Run, Jet, Coming Up, Ebby and Ivory. Uh, you know, that's so that's only five songs outside the new album and only really 11 songs total. It's like, You know, nothing from any other Wings record, uh, nothing from Ram, nothing from, you know, the the early 80s other than Ebony and Ivory, nothing else from the entire tug of war pipes of peace sessions. You know, Mm. there there's so many things that could have been done here. So it's difficult to say. But ultimately, if if the performance itself is good, I'm not going to say no to it. 
Where are the press to play tracks? That's what I want to know. <laughs> what? Why didn't we open with Stranglehold? And why haven't we closed with However Absurd? <laughs> I bet if he played the entirety of Press to Play in order on this tour, it would be the most confusing thing that the, the audience would have ever experienced. And I would have loved to have seen that in person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he finally plays Pretty Little Head but they've only heard the single version. It's like, you're the only people on this planet that bought the single version, <laughs> for fuck's sake. But yeah, what what do you think of this performance? Because I think this is actually a pretty solid performance. I think it's borderline confusing in how, like, wings it sounds. Mm. Like, to me, this genuinely sounded like a track that, if you hadn't told me this wasn't performed by Paul, I wouldn't have believed you that it wasn't done by him. There, There are so many kind of little signatures and sound cues that are just so wings for me mm, in this. Interesting. Yeah, just just lots of little things that just made me think, oh, you know, that's that's a little bit Venus and Marsy, or, oh, that's a little, it's a little bit like Band on the Run, uh, the album, I mean. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it just felt very poor. As a little kind of palate cleanser to kind of wind us down after this incredible experience especially after you know fucking the medley i can't fault it in terms of its function form i can kind of give or i can kind of give or take it really yeah well i and i i feel like it's very similar kind of to um how concert for george ends you know they they have the big all-star performances of while my guitar gently weeps and wawa and then it closes with uh, Joe Brown and the smaller band doing I'll See You In My Dreams. and That's the best song of the album, though. That's the best song. I wouldn't say that, but I think it's very touching. I I think lo- it's beautiful. I love, I love it, man. Honestly, I've listened to it on repeat. It's it's beautiful. Six six months. It's great. Yeah, I love it. Well, and, I, I'm, and I'm not saying that this is as good as that, but just in terms of the function it serves, I do think it's somewhat, somewhat similar. Also, that song has my favourite pronunciation of the word repose. <laughs> Soon my eyes will close, then I'll find repose. Like, oh, the way he sings it's beautiful. Now, Makes me cry almost every time. Now, is that would that be the Scouse way to pronounce repose, or is that more of a... Uh... No, I think that's the Joe Brown London okay. version. Okay, got it. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still learning the different dialects. Yes, we've got more dialects than you've got states, which is mad. Now, everyone, of course, I would love to conclude my thoughts on Tripping the Life Fantastic, but there's more to the story, I'm afraid. And since I like to balance out two-part podcasts, I thought, let's add some extra content. So let's talk about some of the extra tracks that were played and recorded over the 1989 Paul McCartney World Tour but were not included. So, first of all, let's talk about the two tracks that were kind of semi-included in some form. First of all, Dylan, we have a song that we touched on in part one of this conversation, and based upon your violent reaction to it then, I could not help but discuss it first. Recorded in front of 180 fucking thousand people, on the 21st of April 1990 at the Maracana Stadium in Rio, Brazil, which I nearly pronounced as the Macarena Stadium, this is 
P.S. Love Me Do. I just get all my jimmies rustled uh, when I have the pleasure of listening to the longest three minutes and 20 seconds of my life. So I think it was Ken Michaels who told me this, that the reason this song exists was because P.S. I Love You and Love Me Do were the only two songs that he retained in terms of the song rights. What a horrible way to, to, to pay tribute to that piece of trivia. Uh, yeah, like, you know. like I just don't understand the thought for like, okay, so you're what is this you like conceptually and legally taking ownership of those songs? Like, well, I can do what I want here because I own them. I mean, it's I, it's horrific. It's devoid of any soul, anything there, there's absolutely no definition of the word cool that this is synonymous with in any way. It's the whitest thing that's ever been committed to tape. <laughs> Watching it is is even more embarrassing. Every no, single... The, the live version is Oh, worse. God. Every keyboard and guitar sound is terrible. There should have been someone there to tell him that this was terrible and... and if they did and he didn't listen, then that's on him. Uh, there are very few musical steps across his solo career, if any, that are, are more embarrassing and and outright bad as this is. This uh, this is horrifyingly bad to me, and and, and it starts off. Like it, it sets the tone immediately with whether it's him or Hamish or both of them singing as I write this letter, the way that they sing that line, it literally sounds <laughs> like they are trying to make it funny, like intentionally bad or intentionally cheesy. Like this whole thing is complete garbage in every single way it's extremely offensive to listen to and i forced myself <laughs> to listen to it twice coming onto this podcast and i hope that i never need to listen to it ever again but other than that i like it <laughs> this is the tommy wiseau of like paul mccartney projects isn't it it's just like oh no like the idea's bad the execution's bad and yet the guy making it is just not going to be told otherwise. Um, vanity project is a phrase 
that gets bandied about a lot, but this is a vanity project. This is literally just him going, I can do this, mm-hmm. therefore I will. Do you remember in Jurassic Park when uh, Jeff Goldblum was like, you were too busy thinking about whether or not you could, but you didn't think about whether or not you should. Yeah. And it's like, it's it's exactly that. And now Paul McCartney, you're selling it. You're selling it. Well, yeah, and, and I've said, you know, a couple times now, the last thing I'm ever going to do is is shame someone for liking something you know i i'm genuinely happy i mean because there's lots of things that all of us like and don't like and you know for for me if i think of an artist i really don't like you know that artist has changed somebody else's life and who am i to tell them Mm. that they're wrong for thinking or feeling that way you know all, all i can do is explain to the best of my ability why i like or don't like something you know we we already discussed our good friend annie nichols from two legs he likes this. And, and Andy, God bless you for liking PS Love Me Do. And anyone out there who's listening who likes this, that's awesome. And, and I, I certainly hope that my opinion doesn't at all uh, offend anyone or or affect anyone's opinion of it. And uh, and if you haven't heard it, then go listen for yourself. You don't you know, my opinion shouldn't be anyone else's. My opinion can only be my opinion. I will say most times, nine times out of 10, if I don't like something, I can generally understand why someone else might like it and vice versa. You know, I can understand why some people don't like certain things I like, even the things I really don't like across tripping the live fantastic proper. I really do not like that version of coming up, but I, I see where the appeal is for some people. This is the one time out of 10 I do not and I don't think I will ever understand what anyone could like about this. You know, I'm happy for anyone who likes this, but I I don't understand it. I I think it's truly one of the absolute worst things that any of those four men have ever done (laughs) before, during and after the Beatles. It's awful. There's just like. (laughs) <laughs> no, I, this isn't going to make the recording but like you know there's like well at least I'm not PS yeah. you do <laughs> Jesus Christ <laughs> 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 oh you have to edit that out that's bad oh that's funny that's oh god funny. <laughs> Jesus um, honestly I do kind of have a soft spot for the studio recording of P.S. Love Me Do. I mentioned it in our Return to Pepperland recording. I'm kind of in between you and Andy. But do you know what P.S. Love Me Do did not need? The 1989 Paul McCartney live growl on top of it. Like, oh no, it's... It's like adding an elephant stampede to an oil fire. It's like, no, we did not need this right now. This is the worst thing that could have possibly happened. You know what PS Love Me Do really didn't need? To exist. <laughs> well, not only that, but Paul's a bit ashamed of it, I think, because it's clearly unrehearsed. I've mentioned that word a couple of times today, but this is the one that really feels like they just went to fuck it. We're doing it in Rio tonight. <laughs> and he, he even misses a singing cue at one point. It's like, come on, Paul, pull your finger out, son. Next up with our bonus tracks, we have a cover that didn't make it onto the incredibly indulgent and cover-laden album. 
This should be great. I don't have a date for this one because there is no official date. This is just because. Well, 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 just because you think you're so pretty. And just because your mama thinks you're hot. Just because you think you got something. Nobody else has got. Well, you call me to spend all of my money. Honey, that be gone me on Santa Claus. I'm telling you, baby, I'm through with you. Because, well, well, just because. Uh, this was written by the famous trio Bob Shelton, Joe Shelton and Sidney Robin and was made famous by Brenda Lee in 1954. Again, another classic rock and roll number that was included on the Russian album. Straight away, I've got to ask, why was this not included and Sally was? <laughs> well, as a proponent of Sally, I would say that this one did deserve to be on there. i, I got to be honest, I think this is better than 20 Flight Rock. I think that that's fair. That's I, fair. No, no, I think the fair. vocal and guitar work here is great. You know, he, you can tell that he's very clearly both in this version, the album version, uh, uh, kind of aping Elvis's version of it with the vocal. What's mind blowing to me here is that Wicks is using a patch on his keyboard to emulate a pedal steel guitar, and it sounds pretty good. Which begs the question. How the fuck can he find a great pedal steel sound for this, but not find an acceptable horn patch for Carry That Weight? I don't understand it. <laughs> they should have done For You Blue. It, it, it would have been it's, great. It yeah. sounds really good. I, I, I'm surprised, uh, you know, that this wasn't deemed good enough to make it. I, I think it's... And, and maybe it was just... You know, they felt there were already too many covers, like you said, and you know, he really did want 20 Flight Rock on there because his affinity for it. But I think this is better than than at least that, if not, you know, a couple others. Why was this song chosen? Just because. Hey. Oh. Moving on, we have another cover, though. At least it's not another one from that bloody communist spouting album. No. Now, I'm not sure if this version is exactly the one I'm talking about, uh, but the main recording that I'm going to be using was performed on the 27th of November 1989, Milan, Italy, and it is called All My Trials. It's only one thing that money can't
Now, Dylan, this was taken from the ever-trustworthy Wikipedia, and it reads as thus. All My Trials was a folk song during the social protest movements of the 50s and 60s. It is based on a... Is it Bahamian or Bahamian? Bahamian. It is based on a Bahamian lullaby that tells the story of a mother on her deathbed comforting her children. The message? That no matter how bleak the situation seemed, the struggle would soon be over. And propelling the song to the status of a national anthem recorded by many leading artists of the era. The song is usually classified as spiritual because of its biblical and religious imagery. There is an allegory of the River Jordan, the crossing thereof representing the Christian experience of death as something which chills the body but not the soul. The River Death allegory was popularised by John Bunyan in his classic The Pilgrim's Progress and the wording echoes the teaching of Jesus Fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Now that's an awful lot of deep... Uh, <laughs> stuff to kind of wrap your head around there Dylan but what we're left with is a really fun Paul McCartney song that genuinely sounds like nothing I've heard from his entire career again this sounds like a song that just could have been written by him the brass was very poor the opening acoustic was kind of very Wings era-ish and it kind of made me hanker for an album not like Chobber, where Paul is covering old standards, but instead an album where Paul takes traditional songs and covers, but adds his own McCartney-branded spin to them, and this is exactly what we get here. This is Paul's version of if he went back to 1920 and wrote this song himself, you know? I really quite enjoy this one. Yeah, um... Well, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised when you eventually get to Run Double Run, which, of course, you will do after you get to Flaming Pie, which, of course, you will get to after you do Off the Ground. So get on it, Sam. Uh, (laughs) But Run Double Run actually has quite a few songs that fit that sort of mold, Uh, him him taking these old songs that he loves and uh, rather than trying to sort of do a faithful recreation, really put his own spin on them. And um, this is a song, I first knew this song because of Peter, Paul, and Mary, who do a beautiful version of it. But this, you're right, uh, the spin he puts on this is just miraculous. His vocals here, I mean, for everything we've talked about, you know, his voice sounding weak or or a little too raspy uh, across some of the other songs that ended up on the record. Like, so this ended up on... Tripping the Live Fantastic Highlights, if I remember correctly, which was like the, oh, the single uh, disc. Um, yeah, that that is for the Tom Hunyardis out there who need to collect <laughs> everything. It's like, what can we put on this disc that will make someone who has wisely bought the better album? <laughs> oh, let's put on one song. One but it's just like this. Song. Think about how much better Tripping the Live Fantastic would be the proper album if this was on here. And... 100%. And and you know what? Like, again, for everything I've said, for all of the criticism that I've dished out, man, if this isn't one of Hamish's finest moments, too, on vocals, I mean, this is the one antithesis to everything I've been saying. Their blend here is miraculous. They both are hitting these absolutely stellar notes. 
it, it's a really soulful, beautiful, beautiful performance. Um, kind of mind-boggling to me that, that this one didn't make it. It's a shame it didn't, really. Again, why was Sally included? Oh, but you like Sally. Uh, yeah, so can't, we, can't we pick on another song? Why was Birthday let's included? A... <laughs> <laughs> let's pick on another song. One that is a Revolver classic, a Give My Regards to Broad Street classic, you might say. This is Good Day Sunshine. comes to this particular track I can totally understand why Paul decided to ultimately leave it off the final album a little bit like this one where everything is indeed trying it's all a bit too ambitious and nothing quite sticks the landing um, the outcome with this one I thought was tremendously mediocre and I wish it was better because I would have liked this song to have replaced Got to Get You Into My Life which is a bit kind of been there done that by this point I mean, even the backing vocals, something that I've been kind of positive with throughout this whole album review, something that I've kind of taken a shine to, doesn't work out here, particularly Linda. Like, this is a real low point for her, mm. where I'm sure a lot of the stereotypes come from. Like, I thought it was going to be really bad when I heard Linda doing Hey Jude. Thankfully, nothing happened there. But you could really pick her out on this one. I'm like, yeah, I, I know why this, this, this didn't make it past the curve. Mm. So interestingly, I, I feel like for quite a few of these songs, you have felt positively about them, and then I have shot you down. I think this is this is one of the only times where we feel oppositely. I thought they did a good job, sort of beefing this one up with the electric guitar work, without it sounding cheesy or overpowering. Um, again, all the conversations we've had about you know matching the energy of the original and. Of original songs and and how do you do that when it's a song that's so understated on the original recording so they failed with a song like things we said today because they tried to beef it up and make it this bigger arena rock thing and it kills the vibe i think adding the electric guitar work that they did here gives it that proper live energy because if you're just trying to recreate the original there's just not enough there on the recording where i think it would work in a live setting. And I don't think that the broad street does a good job of matching the energy either because it plays it note for note, like the original, except with really silky smooth harmonies and production. That sounds not Mm. very great in my mind. (laughs) I think this does a much better job. I really like it. Um, The vocals didn't bother me again. I only listened to it three times. 
but on none of those three times did the vocals really stand out to me as being poor or bad. I personally would have put this on, um, but, you know, look, look at us just disagreeing and having good conversation. Up next, we have a song that, off-air, Dylan referred to as the best song from Wings at the Speed of Sound. This is Let Him In. play this in 2018 without previously being aware that he was about to fucking play Let Him In of course I lost it when he did start playing those notes and I've been I've been indebted to that song ever since I've been so unbelievably in love with it and I reckon you thought when you said that Let Him In was the you know the best song on the album that it was going to be a hot take that I'd really you know back up against I think a lot of people get lost in silly love songs and don't appreciate Let Em In for the kind of real classic that it is. <laughs> I've got to agree with you, this is top 20 Wings tracks mm-hmm. and Paul does it really well here. He does it really fucking well. Well, I have an overabundance of hot takes when it comes to Wings at the Speed of Sound and I can't possibly begin to go into all of them on air. Um... But I do think that Let Him In, I don't even know how much of a hot take it is because it is a well-known song. Um, Mm. But for my money, it's the best song on the record. Although I don't love this version. I I don't, I think the horns sound pretty bad here. That wonderful flange guitar, chorus guitar pops up again. That electric piano sound that, seeps in during the sister Susie part sounds a little little too cheesy for my taste Uh, Hamish doesn't sound great on this one again to me really for me the best part of this is him singing do me a flavor at the end of it uh that that (laughs) yeah I don't know I love this song but I I couldn't dig this particular version this one Sounded a bit like a product of its time, the, the late 80s, early 90s time, where a couple, couple things are a little too slick and a little too clean for me. I actually kind of... I don't know. I, again, rather like coming up, I really enjoyed the very computery, modulated keyboard piano notes that Wixie played on this one. And I think he recreated those kind of American Civil War-esque flutes quite well 
and again I love having Linda on the backing vocals on these during the you know do 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 towards the end like yeah all I could think of was wins over America you sure know? maybe this that's why this song was left off because that was on that album and it gets a bit of a lower priority I really like it actually <laughs> I'm no I'm going to come down firmly on this one. Well. Not too sure what I would have replaced it with or what would have taken off, but... Well, look, you, you can have let him in. I'll I'll take Good Day Sunshine. And, you know, we're just making the best out of a bad situation here. You know, we'll both have our own Mandela Effect versions of this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and finally, 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 we come on to two things that no Paul McCartney affair is complete without a multi-song medley and a tribute to John Lennon. This is the 1989-1990 medley of Strawberry Fields Forever, Help and Give Peace a Chance. To someone we love dearly. Two, three, four... classic Beatles songs that people haven't heard anywhere else and cannot hear anywhere else so for him to deliver songs by a Beatle who was not even alive to even sing them at this point on his comeback tour just like Hey Jude must have been overwhelming in a completely different way people were wondering freaking out yet again though Despite this track being performed, four of these tracks being performed 14 times in total across the tour, it was left off the album. Why do you think that is? It's an interesting question. I can't imagine that there would have been too much of an issue with with licensing, at least for at mm. least for Give Peace a Chance, which would have been owned by Yoko or, or John's estate. I imagine he could have. It's a, a it's a Lennon McCartney track, though. Well, I, I know it was originally. I thought that was changed, but perhaps at that point it hadn't been changed yet. Um, but it, it's tough to say. Um, maybe he didn't want the center. Fo- you know, Paul has been very diligent about making his solo career his solo career, and and even when he is, you know, always talking about the Beatles and and bringing up John and in interviews and all these things, he is always sort of, or not always, but he, he does make it a point a lot of the times, like it was a big deal when he brought out Mr. Kite, you know, in 2013 for a mm. few tours. But part of that was, 
Well, you know, uh, I helped write this song. Everyone thinks it's a John song, but I did. I also added a lot to this, you know. Maybe it was just like, hey, you know, I, I like doing this. I want to pay tribute to him. I, I don't know if the first performance was in Liverpool, but I know that at least partly it was uh, devised for the, the big show he did in Liverpool to celebrate John's 50th. Um, but maybe it was just, hey, you know what? Like, I'm happy to do this. I like doing this. But for my live album, you know, I, I want it to be my stuff. Uh but that's just conjecture. I have no idea because, you know, he hasn't had any problem, you know, back in the U.S. and good night uh, or good evening New York City putting his performance of something on there. Uh, so I uh, I really couldn't tell you um, from a from a um, performance standpoint. It's it's certainly solid. I, I think this is one of those times like if I'm being honest, I'm probably not going to listen to it too much on my spare time there's things about it i don't love but i do my best if i'm trying to critique a song or just sort of explore my feelings on a song and, and tell you why i like something or don't like something i try not to let concept cloud me too much you know because you know, lots of songs have great concepts, but it doesn't mean that I think they're executed all that well, or vice versa. I mean, there's a lot of songs I really love that have absolutely no meaning or concept to them, but I really like the way they sound for one reason or another. Uh, this is a performance where I have to say whatever negative feelings I have surrounding it, whether those are guitar tones or, or keyboard tones or anything like that, they are pretty sufficiently overruled by the gesture and by what it actually means. Like, do I think that Paul has, for as good, as great as his voice is, do I think that he sings Strawberry Fields Forever great? <laughs> no, he doesn't sing it badly, but, you know, it is what it is. But ultimately it's a really touching performance and it's a really touching gesture. And that is, so if someone plays it or I hear it, I'm happy to listen to it because I, I think that is sort of the most important part of it. I think really, honestly, funnily enough for me, my favorite part of it is give peace a chance. And I say funnily because Strawberry Fields Forever and Help are masterfully written songs, whereas Give Peace a Chance is certainly a catchy melody and a slogan, but, you know, it's two chords and mostly just a, a slogan. But I think musically, it's the way he does it here is very, very soulful. I love the harmonies that they're adding to it. Uh, hearing how the audience responds to it, I think, is really, really touching. So, I don't know. I, I think if I were making my Tripping the Live Fantastic album, this could potentially make it on there. But if I'm being honest, the ways in which I enjoy it are certainly a little more conceptually than because of the content. Would you say you enjoy this concept more than P.S. Love Me Do? Oh, God. I just... <laughs> I just <laughs> there's only so much negativity I can espouse in one day. I'm a very positive person, actually. For me, Strawberry Fields was probably the strongest segment, but that's based entirely off what you were saying with the whole, just the concept of it. 
Though yeah. Wixie was born to do a track like Strawberry Fields. <laughs> he was. I would love to hear Paul bring out Strawberry Fields these days. Mm. I, I, I bet this current touring band, like, can't you see, like, them doing the whole song, including that coda and, and Abe doing all that all insane drum stuff that's happening at the end while Wix is doing the do 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 And then it goes into Foxy Lady. And now he'll go into, I don't know, maybe Purple Haze. We'll, we'll choose another Hendrix song. <laughs> and, then, and then Paul says, a few years ago, I was in New Orleans. <laughs> We're just getting too meta now. And I met Fats Domino, and then and then the crowd go crazy, and he's like, "What?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wasn't expecting that. But that never happened back in '89. <laughs> is he, is he on like an iPhone advert or something? <laughs> right, Dylan. Th- this is the end. So the, the love you take is equal to the love you make. And we are now done with Tripping the Live Fantastic Disc 2 and therefore Tripping the Live Fantastic as a whole. After 37 tracks and over two hours of runtime, we are indeed done. What do we think of our experience? Well, first, as the man more well-versed in both this album and the art of instrumentation, would you call this album a must-have purchase in a McCartney fan's collection? No. Uh, <laughs> it's a very quick answer. <laughs> no, I, I mean, look, if if we're talking about, you know, the, the pantheon of McCartney Live records, there are four, at least, that are, I think, more essential than this. You have to look at Wings Over America as essential, whether or not you think it's the best. And I'll be honest, Wings Over America is not my favorite live McCartney record, but... It's a must-have, I think, both for how good it is, like content-wise, and then certainly, you know, the importance of of his history. And then I think it's not even close that both back in the U.S. and Amoeba Gig are better. And I would say that Unplugged is is better and much more essential. Certainly, much more interesting. And I don't mean any of this, again, to downplay the importance of this tour. Uh, it's, it's supremely important. And there are some really great performances on here. Uh, you know, I don't at all discourage anyone from buying it necessarily, but I'm not going to recommend it, especially if you don't have the other live records first. I, I think... If you're going to purchase this record, you know, like if, if you're a completist, then that's great. You know, just understand, I think, what the, the context is. And again, I'm <laughs> I know I said this last time, but I'm sure that some listeners are just bristling at, at two guys talking about this record who weren't even alive for it. But, you know, for me, I guess just the way I look at it is there, there's also Paul is live in Good Evening, New York City, and I need to revisit both of them. But they are even more, I don't want to say inconsequential, or I, I guess even less essential than this. Paul is Live has some good performances on it, but it's, I just still don't think it's my favorite band that he ever had. It's, it's this same band, except 
uh, for Blair Cunningham on drums instead of Chris Witten. And then Good Evening New York City just has some bad post-production on it, and there's too many repeat songs. I, I don't know about you, and I don't want to bulldoze this entire conversation, but Wings Over America, look, you know, it's awesome. Paul's voice is great. The band is killer. Energy is great. Sound is great. There's nothing wrong with it. It's fantastic. I do think I'm in the minority in the sense that I don't necessarily prefer a lot of the live versions of the Venus and Mars and Speed of Sound material. Like some some of them maybe, but hmm. everyone always seems to point to Letting Go, for instance. And I think there's a swampiness to the album version that is clearly better for me. Not at all to say that the live version isn't great. The live version smokes, but... I prefer the album version of a lot of those songs, but you can't deny the greatness of that album as a whole, the importance of it. And I mentioned it a few times, but I I really gravitate towards back in the U S I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that's better than wings over America because objectively his voice isn't as strong and Mm. they're really just too different to compare. But I probably personally prefer back in the U S on a lot of days. I, I love that's the first tour with the current band he has now. I yeah. love their arrangements of the Beatles songs, the solo songs that they do tackle are strong. And his voice there is the strongest it ever was in a post wings live setting. It is, it, he's got most of his range. He's got the power. He doesn't overdo it. Like he does in a lot of tripping live. Fantastic. It's a great collection of songs. But the big gem really is Amoeba Gig because you can hear how invigorated he is playing in an intimate setting and he's letting loose. He's allowing the band to let loose. There's an energy to it that's palpable and really beautiful. Uh, You know, the big arena shows, they rely on bombast to reach everyone in the audience. But these intimate shows have a little less of that. And as a, as a performer, you can actually play more off of the crowd when you're not worrying about people in the back that are miles away. So, you know, to, to bring it back around to this, I'm really glad that I revisited this record. I had so much fun talking about it with you. But ultimately, you know, as a McCartney fan, it's not top shelf live material. I don't think it's essential live material. I think it is historically essential to understand and know about. And yeah, it's all worth listening. I think everyone should always listen and form their own opinion. But that's that's where I'm currently at with it. Um, now for you, I know that you you know, are in the process of doing off the ground, but coming off of Flowers in the Dirt, you, you are very familiar right now with this era of Paul. So for you going back and listening to this, where are you at with it? I'm very well aware that a lot of my bias is going to come from the fact that I'm just in love with a lot of the Flowers in the Dirt material and that he doesn't fucking play any of it ever, ever again. So this is very special in terms of capturing this particular set list. So that means it's always going to be essential for me as a super nerd. (laughs) Overall, though, this is mostly just a time capsule kind of album. A lot of Paul's stuff is invalidated, but not in a negative way. It's only invalidated by a better product released later on, at least with his live stuff. And for a certain period, he, he, he was only getting better and better. 
this isn't that period. And, <laughs> you know, coming out of doing Paul's 80s stuff, everyone's like, oh, the 80s, that was, that was the difficult decade. Oh, that's the time when the music wasn't very good. I'm coming into the 90s period now. I'm thinking maybe this is the period where things were actually at their rockiest and not at their most steady. And, mm. you know, certain, certain things about uh, this episode has given me a little bit of caution in terms of going into off the ground, um, especially in terms of the knowledge that I know that I'm going to have to review an episode, probably with you, I fucking imagine, where we're going to do the off the ground set list. And rather than songs from Flowers in the Dirt that I've got this real affinity to, I'm going to end up having to listen to you know, the second side of off the ground, which I do not particularly care for at all at the moment. Mm. Though I am looking forward to uh, Biker Like an Icon, I must admit. Dylan, <laughs> if you could either remove the annoying guitar tones or add a five-piece, six-piece orchestra to this band, what would it be? Oh, God. Oh. And you can have Thaddeus in there. You can have, you know, all the all the classic Wings Over America guys if you want. Uh, you know, it might be heresy to some people, but give me better guitar tones at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, this 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 is a rock and roll band. It's supposed to be a rock and roll band. I don't want to hear brilliant songs mired by bad tones. I can deal with synthesized horns and strings. I mean, sometimes they sound really bad but those are those aren't on every song the guitar is on every song i don't need to hear band on the run with chorus guitar i really don't and if you're in same same thing with birthday and i know that i said that you know i don't think that's a song that's ever been done properly live but i at least want to hear it with a good guitar tone i don't need to hear it like eric johnson or joe satriani is playing guitar on it so that's that's where i would go so, would a concise review of this album be that it's dated? <laughs> I know. Yes, I've or, me- yes or no, state your case, and then I won't let you explain yourself any further. <laughs> I know that I've mentioned his name a few times now, but I can just hear Ken Michaels bristling when you say that. and, and I, You know I, what, Sam? I... I there's nothing about the music that is dated to me. I, I just, no, I, I love Paul. I, I all I care about is the music, and uh, my no. podcast is bigger than yours. Stop! Stop! <laughs> Stop! No, we love we love Ken, and and I there's the I have so much so much Ken. If you're listening, I know that I've expressed it to you via Facebook Messenger before, but I could not have. More respect for you, which is why I say, yes, this is dated. This album is dated the, in, in, in a lot of ways. And, and we discussed off air that dated does not always mean a bad thing. You know, there, there's the very real argument to be had that Sgt. Pepper is dated because it very clearly sounds like an album from 1967. Whereas I think an album like Abbey Road sounds like it could be from any year between 1968 and the present. And that doesn't necessarily make one better than the either. It's just 
what something sounds like. If you like the sound of something, then it doesn't matter if it sounds dated or not. This, to me, sounds dated in a few different ways. It sounds dated in the sense that you can hear, when you know what the progression of Paul's, you know, live sound is, this is him at the beginning of his, you know, big Beatles live show era with the expanded band. I don't think he's quite figured it out yet for as good as some of it is. I don't think that some of the sounds have held up well. I don't think that some of his vocal performances have held up well, which is miraculous that he was somehow able to get better vocal performances when he was pushing 60 rather than when he was pushing 50. And so I guess that's what I would say. In other ways, it has held up well. I mean, like you said, this version of Hey Jude is Hey Jude. You know, this is what we've gotten for the last 30 years. This version of Live and Let Die is the one that you've been getting from, you know, 1975, 1976. And it still sounds great today. Uh, you know, the, he, he does it the same way and it still kills. So that part of it isn't dated. But yeah, I, I would say overall it is. What was your favorite track from both disc one and two? Wow. I will say that my favorite track, and it's not my favorite song, but my favorite track, honestly, is probably We Got Married. Oh, that! what a great choice. I'm not even going to press you further for, <laughs> for an explanation. I just want to leave it at that. Yeah, it rocks. It it really rocks. It's 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 like I said, not my favorite song from Flowers, not my favorite Paul song and it's probably middle of the pack for me, but just in terms of the power of the live performance, I think how, it's really How exciting is that though? That a track that on the actual album is fine for you, but when done live, it's suddenly transcendent. That's great. I love that. Well, yeah, um, it you know, it yeah. I, w- I won't say anymore. That's that's it. <laughs> I'm not trolling you here, dude, but for me, my favourite track is Ain't That a Shame. It really is. <laughs> I really love it. It's I so don't... I, listen, I... My favourite track on... And I was having this conversation uh, with... And don't shoot me. I was having this conversation with the Two Legs guys the other night. Because they've been they've been doing their you know ranking all the tracks and all the records and they were doing wildlife and they each had love is strange near the bottom of their list and like I don't care if it's a cover that's my favorite track on wildlife they're like it's so good that song oh, it's so good and ain't that a shame is great ain't that a shame is in the top half for me easily of and so is don't let the sun catch you crying there ain't nothing wrong with that and and you know what and I'll go the other way and say. Before I said we got married, I was about to say, hey, Jude, as as cliche and lame as that sounds, like genuinely, I think it is a solid emotional performance of Hey, Jude, the song that everyone makes fun of him for because he always plays Hey, Jude. And he always does now just the boys and just the girls. And he has to play it every show. It's like, I don't care. I mean, it might be my it might be my favorite on, on this record. It's that good. And that's OK. And it's OK if Ain't That a Shame is like that for you, too. It's funny that going into this record, 
you know, when I first started this podcast, I was like, oh God, it's full of flowers in the dirt songs. And now I love it. And yeah. then when I first came to actually researching this episode fully, I was like, oh God, there's loads of shitty covers on it that I'm not going to give a fuck about. <laughs> and now, at the end of this, Dylan, my favourite moments are all the covers and all the flowers in the dirt <laughs> songs. So. For real. I mean, look, if, if we went to go see Paul McCartney right now and he played you know, his standard 30-song set, but none of them were Beatles songs. It was all solo stuff and a few covers. How happy would we be? We'd be so, st- and we'd be just as happy if we saw him play thirty Beatles songs. But you know, like it's it's interesting, and 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 that's the aspect of it. If you're talking about if this is dated or not, or if this is essential or not, it's like sure you have to look at the whole product. But ultimately. This is the only place where you're going to get a live version of Figure of Eight and We Got Married, both of which kick ass, and the live version of Rough Ride, which kicks ass. So, I mean, fuck everything I said. I mean, those tracks rock. I mean, so for that, it's absolutely worth listening to. And if you think it's worth purchasing, then go and purchase it. Ain't that a shame, eh? Ain't that a shame. What is your least favorite track from these two discs? Uh, I mean, is it coming up? It's probably coming up. <laughs> Ebony and Ivory is up there too. I really, I mean, which is, but, but it's cause Ebony and Ivory is a song. I'm not crazy about the studio version and I like the live version even less coming up is a song that I love that I think is, yeah, it's, for me, it's either Sally, it, uh, the long and winding road, or maybe maybe I'm amazed just just because I've got a running beef with that song that is pre-existing. It's got nothing to do with you. Do not worry. Yeah. So does it kill you that I made like my own twelve version? 12 song version of trip in the life. Fantastic. That I would want to hear. And I included Sally on it (laughs) because of my affinity for the covers in general. I'm going to let it slide. (laughs) I include Sally and inner city madness on my 12 song trip in the life. Fantastic. (laughs) On your single disc version of tripping the life. Fantastic. You have inner city madness. Yes, absolutely. No, no question about it. Well, the city from which your madness derives is Nashville, clearly. That is some inner inner city madness indeed. Dylan, one last question before we start wrapping things up. Yes or no, do you enjoy this album? Yes. A a a reluctant yes. And I think I'll go with a yeah, which is a, 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 a yes with a question mark on the end. Yeah. I've enjoyed it more than I thought I would, Dylan. Honest, on, on, honestly, I thought I, I thought the highlight was just going to be having this chat with you, but no, the album has been a lot more nourishing than I thought it would be. This is for me across all of Paul McCartney's projects: studio albums, live albums, compilations, solo, Wings, Firemen, classical, whatever it is. No matter how much I think something is good or bad, I don't know if I've ever found any of it to be not interesting. 
And so that for me is always a reason to listen, to revisit. Um, and that's more than I can say for a lot of artists. So I will absolutely say that. Well, Dylan, that's the only thing I'm, I'm aiming for with this podcast. I know for a fact that I can't guarantee that it's good or quality. So I do aim to be an interesting podcast at the very <laughs> least. Thank you so much for coming on to help me to discuss this album, dude. I mean, it's already been far too long since our Let It Be chat. And I haven't told you this off air. I don't know why I thought this, but... I didn't think you were a completionist. I, d- I didn't think you actually knew much about McCartney at all. I thought you just knew enough stuff for us to talk about, like, <laughs> the Beatles movies and stuff. I don't know why I thought this. I, I must have got you mixed up with someone else. And then when you said, oh, let's do Tripping the Live Fantastic, I was like, oh, the guy who I've had a lot of fun talking about Beatles with also knows obscure, random, lame McCartney. This is going <laughs> to be fucking great. So, so honestly, thank you so much for coming on and, and, and doing this, man. This this has been really fun, and it's been a great chance to get involved with an album that I might not have bothered to get around to for an, another couple, couple of years. So thank you for introducing me to Tripping the Live Fantastic. Man, it, it was my pleasure, and I can't thank you enough for having me on again. Uh, you know, I it's it's so much better for your brand to... Uh, have someone on your show who actually has, you know, name recognition and uh, anything like that, which I don't really have, but it means a lot to me that you give me a chance anyway. And um, I hope that I haven't been completely incoherent and and terrible to deal with. Um, you know, there's really nothing more. There's nothing I love more, I should say, than than talking about this music in general, certainly anything to do with with any of the four Beatles together or separate with good people who, you know, know, know their shit are, are willing to learn more, are willing to teach me, are able to teach me. And, um, you know, I think it's extremely important and extremely great. And, uh, it's, it's truly been an honor and I'm excited to do it again. Perhaps for Paul is live. Paul is live. Chobber. You know, the world is our oyster. There's def- another movie, you know. Let's, you know, we could totally tear yesterday a new asshole for four hours. I could definitely see that happening. Or we could do a, we could, instead of listen with Sam, we could do watch with Sam and just listen to you react to yesterday while it's happening. No, I, I was thinking of doing listen with Sam with, where I have a guest on for a listen with Sam ep- 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 episode. But it's another another new side series where I have to start from McCartney one again. <laughs> <laughs> so I get and to talk anything, about Ram again. Yeah, any anything for you to put off this off the ground episode, it's it's terrible. You just need to do it. Oh, do you know what the fucked up thing is here, Dylan? And I'm sorry if, if this is spoilers, folks. I'm actually really kind of enjoying off the ground. It's actually not that awful at all. Oh, don't, yeah, don't listen to Tom Hanyadi. Form your own opinions. <laughs> and on that bombshell, folks, we are going to bring another episode of Paul or Nothing to a close. My gosh, this has been an incredible time. I've had so much fun. Uh, I can't wait to get around to editing this one, actually. I'm sure Denny Lane has already been playing us out for a couple of minutes already, but yeah, 
I've been Sam, he's been Dylan. Please keep listening to Paul. McCartney 3 should be out by the time you hear this, so how fucking mad is that? Oh my god, right? Long-tailed winter bird. How mad's that? You know the shtick now, folks. Dylan, thank you so much for coming on, dude. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. Peace and love, everyone. No more autographs. Nice, nice, nice reference. Yeah.